my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to Valar Reredis. It's the first Sunday of 2022. And I'm already doing that thing that everybody does when the year changes. You know, I, I've noted the documents that we've got. I've got the first three Sundays worth of documents started. And they all say... 2021 on them. <laughs> Everyone, right? It's starting the year off in the past. But hey, we're looking in the past, so that's somewhat appropriate, isn't it? And as you may have heard from the chuckle there, we have our good friend Sean in the house as per usual. And what are you drinking today, Sean? What's your first awkward live stream beverage of the year? Sean in the house beard. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Good call. This is the Naked Drink Green Machine, along with the Sparkling Ice Coconut Pineapple, <laughs> of course, with Standard Classic Mountain Dew. Standard Classic Mountain Dew. Maybe one day we'll have to do a history of Mountain Dew instead of all this other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I got my caffeine, I got my carbonation, I got my sugar, and I got my nutrients. What else do you want for a drink? What else do you want? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I'm really excited to be getting into this book. We love world building. George loves world building. It shows, it shines. Hopefully pass that on to you all as well. As usual, we've got a little bit of note help from Nina, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L. Check out her blog for more great information. There's a uh, good post. Tumblr only has one L. <laughs> <laughs> There's a post on her blog about right now about matrilineal marriages. That's the most recent one as of when I uh, wrote this down. And that's a cool thing. If, if you don't know what a matrilineal marriage is, you certainly do if you've watched our Friday Crusader Kings for a Game of Thrones uh, game streams, or if you've played it yourself, or you may just know anyway. But if in case you don't, matrilineal marriage is when the woman's family name is carried forward rather than the man's, which of course in Westeros, is pretty significant when that happens. It's usually, or almost always, uh, based on you know property rights. Uh, someone has a title, so you want to keep that title in the family. We encourage you to ask questions of us as well. Since we have uh, more flexibility with this material, we expect to go into more rabbit holes and to go deeper into those rabbit holes. It was kind of a struggle in regular Valor Veritas. We have to kind of manage ourselves like, nope, can't go too far with that subtopic uh, because there's just so many of them. Here, the subtopics are the focus. So that is uh, more germane for us. And we can go in a variety of directions. Sean, what is your... Uh, we could start off with just sort of your initial impression of this book. I don't know. Have you read any in any other fandom? Have you ever gone this deep into world building or, or read books like like in Star Wars or anything like that? Have you ever done anything like this? No. no? I, maybe D&D &D if that counts, but uh, that's all just kind of spread out world building in the first place. There's nothing central behind it either, you know, so, but that's like maybe the closest. And I, I, I almost, in fact, avoid that kind of thing when it comes to, I, I'm more into movies and nowadays even TV than I am books in the first place. Yeah. And I know a lot of times there is something that it was based on in the first place or a comic series. And to me, that's interesting and I appreciate it, but I just want to judge the movie on the movie. Yeah. I don't want to have to dig into this other stuff. And sometimes if I like it enough, and if you do again, dig into it, you gain extra insights. It's, you know, I don't want to be ignorant to all that, but I don't normally dive into it like I have with 
Game of Thrones. Yeah, and th- so, that's pretty. I think that's a pretty common attitude to have, and it probably would have been mine way in the past. I've. I think it might be this world building, not this book specifically, because I got deep into the world building before this book came out. But because of this. Because of A Song of Ice and Fire, I think I learned to appreciate world building even more. I had already read The Silmarillion and a few other things. I think I have a more natural interest in in such things. Like you, I played D&D, so that was maybe where it truly got started. But in terms of story, I think it's really George R. R. Martin that really took my love of world building to another level. And I appreciate it more um, when I'm reading it in other stories. Um, and I'm a little more likely to delve into the behind-the-scenes world-building than I used to be as well. Sometimes it can be frustrating because it's not consistent. Like yeah. with Star Wars, for example, there's all sorts of novels that were written, you know, you're talking like pre-Nuquils or I don't know how to yeah. <laughs> define the time period, but, you know, that books that had been written by just fans, it had been kind of accepted as canon, yeah, but not necessarily. And in a lot of it was specifically abandoned. And it's almost frustrating when you do have sort of histories built up even if it's only superficial or kind of to the side, to then have to like be told to ignore it now. Yeah. But <laughs> that, that doesn't seem like it's happening with Game of Thrones. George is very consistent with what he's building and has a lot of control over it and is building on it more and more. Yeah, he's took control uh, of it relatively early before it got out of control like it did with Star Wars. Like no one wants that to happen again. Um, <clears throat> another thing is that I appreciate this adjacent to world building but is uh, background research. I, I remember just in high school, a, a couple of thoughts about a high school English classes that remind me of this process. One is that I had a teacher who, she wasn't like testing to see if we had read the books. Like, I, I think I brought this up before that uh, a lot of times the questions are like, what was a setting? What was a main character's name? But this teacher would ask questions like, where did the author grow up? Oh, <laughs> you, know, you know, she was expecting us to research the author and read other books by them. You know, she, of course we read this book, you know, and that, that kind of affected me too. Just thinking about like, we've even talked about like Martin would have gone through the Vietnam war, just things mm-hmm. in his life yeah. and how that would, would permeate into what he's writing about. And, uh, so, you know, in addition to like external world world building resources, I do think it is worth considering what's going on in the author's life or in society at the time, parallels you can draw. And again, something I remember from doing research papers is you have to consider the source of whatever you're reading or researching about. And for this book specifically, that's a very interesting thing even to think about how Martin, and I guess other people helped him write this too, you know, they, they have to like have this truth this, this actual world, and then also know how to present it from one perspective or another, which Martin's done throughout the course of the books, but this book is even another example, another angle of that. Yeah. So, uh, it's almost overwhelming with thoughts and ideas and considerations. I, I keep looking, I've got the book right next to me. <laughs> in awe. Uh, <laughs> like, never mind, the kind, like you said, it's hard to know. I mean, I get, we're probably going to default to just try to move through the book as it's presented. But every bit of it is so connected to other things yes. within itself and within other books. Not to mention just like the tangents we could go on talking about the art. <laughs> yeah, that's I, true. Like, <laughs> I, I've come to appreciate audiobooks and and especially as like a second uh, listen or read or whatever. It's a, it's a good addition to the experience. But with this book, you really need to be looking at the pages and the art and and even though it's almost like it's the book itself almost has different authors like the main text but then he's like little added pieces 
anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but to, I'm overwhelmed. That's yeah, well, that's great. No, that was a, that was a great answer. I have a real quick question about the audiobook. Do sure. they describe the art? No, no. the audiobook yeah. is unfortunate. Okay. You definitely miss a few things, even besides the art uh, from the audiobook. For example, at some of y'all, if you've read it, you notice that it was originally dedicated to Robert, and then Robert's like erased, and it's Joffrey, and then Joffrey's erased, and it says Tommen. It just says the book is for Tommen in the, in the audiobook. There's no indication that it used to be that, that that little bit is lost in translation, so to speak. So that's that is too bad. But the art, of course, is the main thing you miss out on. But the art you can find online in different places. So uh, at least a lot, I think most of it or if not all of it. But um, yeah, so it is worth owning a copy of. It is a beautiful book. It's big, stands out on a bookshelf. <laughs> it's really uh, <laughs> it's beefy. But yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. And it's really interesting because George would have said a lot of the same things you just said about what an author should or typically does present from their work. This whole extended material thing is a relatively recent addition to fandoms, right? Like no one was writing, I think before J.R.R. Tolkien, I'm not sure there was much, exa- many other examples at all of, of people padding their world or adding to their world in a separate volume like that. So, but what your, the Bible did. The it. Bible. Did. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> and George, so George would have said, like when he's been interviewed in the past, he's like, "Oh, you know, when I need to invent a new house, I make it up on the fly." Or when he's someone's like, "Well, like back in the day, people asked him questions about high Valyrian." He's like, "Well, I've I've made up seven high Valyrian words. That's all there is. If I need an eighth, I'll make it up when I need to." That, but that is something he used to say. Now he can't really say that anymore. Now that he's written this book and then another world book, <laughs> like he's he's like now the tale. So the tale grew in the telling, but so did people's interest. Like he didn't envision Game of Thrones being this big back when he said those things, even when it was gaining massive popularity. Back when he said those things, it wasn't a TV show yet. I can imagine yeah. even then when he said those things that either hadn't encountered or hadn't encountered often enough the moment when he needs a, a slew of new houses yeah. or new Valerian words. And when he does get to that moment, he'd probably like, okay, let me pause for a minute and hash this out. And after he does that 10 times, he's like, okay, let me write a new book based on all this stuff. Yeah, and, and it also started to get more difficult for him. He's like, well, I can't just start adding them anymore. Now they, they've interacted. I have, I've, there's too much paint yeah. on the canvas. If I start throwing paint where, you know, without looking... I might overlap because that's when you start getting continuity errors and things like that. Also, this was back when a lot of these quotes that I'm referring to or his attitudes are back when he thought this would be a trilogy too. So it's <laughs> not only has the main series grown in the telling, the world building's grown with it, but even more so than would have been dictated by just expanding the series, which of course we love. That's fantastic. We're, we're world building nerds over here. Um, so if we were kind of describing, like from a high level view, the difference between A Song of Ice and Fire and Duncan Egg and The World of Ice and Fire, and I guess Fire and Blood can sort of be an add-on, an addendum to that concept. A Song of Ice and Fire is obviously the main course. It's the focus. It's got the, the main world building and all the main characters, whereas Duncan Egg is more of a hyper-focus on characters, where this is a hyper-focus on world building. And Fire and Blood sort of dials a little bit back, getting a little more of the character work in there. But on the other hand, uh, World of Ice and Fire has a lot more relevance to the current characters because Fire and Blood stops at the Dance of the Dragons, 
which, you know, as an aside, it, with the House of the Dragon show coming out, that will sort of give it more additional relevance in that sense. In my mind, the main series, that's a political drama. Yeah. It has some adventure and mystery and all this other stuff in it. Duncan Egg is more like an adventure. Yeah. That is still rich with character development. And both of them are building a world that we have these other books that are also building the world. But the other books don't necessarily have the same sort of character development or, yeah. or political intrigue, et cetera. You know? Another thing I'd like to add about world building is say just how much it's growing out in the world, how much more it's becoming a thing. Like you see bonus features on a lot of TV shows. Like The Wheel of Time is a good example of a current one or The Witcher where they just give you a few minutes of something. You know, like as a side story, um, in the case of The Witcher, they've just started making more shows. <laughs> in the case of Wheel of Time, yeah, they yeah. have like a feature with every episode that's like a little historical nugget where it's like a five minute film. A lot like the history and lore videos that we have for World of, for Game of Thrones. But they're... Uh, the Boys yeah. is doing that also, oh, by the very way. Cool. They're doing a lot of little like side videos and short films and stuff like that. And I didn't think of it till just now, but do you know who I think should get a lot of credit for that? Who? Lost. Oh, Lost was doing that. And that was right. when the internet was kind of new and they were releasing information online that, that most people didn't even know what online meant, you know, but uh, but I found out because of Lost. You That's know? <laughs> a great point. Yeah, I'm I, I'm critical of Lost. You know, I didn't finish it, but it did break some ground. And some of that ground is still yeah. like you just said, this is a perfect example. It still does have an impact on, on things that are happening now. That's a great example. Yeah, it had all those flashbacks where you really got to know these characters and learning who they were and why they're where they are. And that, that's great. Yeah, like people really got into that. They liked that presentation. And I think you're right. That might be where a lot of other authors and, and showrunners took their cues and say, look, people are interested in, in expansion of not just the world, because really with Lost, it wasn't the world that was getting expanded. It was the characters. It was their backstories yeah. were getting filled in. In fact, you were specifically away from their, the current world building when you were delving into that. Because it's like you're back. You're going far in the past before they were on the island or whatever. <laughs> Although, I, uh, just to be clear, though, I am talking... Oh, everything you're saying is true. But they were releasing material outside the show. Oh, kind of okay. I, I think I they forgot were releasing, about that. They were releasing information online that would... If you just watch the show, you would never get some of the information that they had also put yeah, out Yeah, you're, so. you're totally right. I do remember that now. They had like little... Because yeah, you're right. That's why you mentioned the internet being young then. Because going to a website yeah. for something was... <laughs> something that was like, coming on TV was like, you know... Yeah. A, a new concept. Very new. That's new. very true. So here's a, a quick quote from Elio and Linda, who are the co-authors with George. We'll have a... A, a lot more to say about that. In fact, he, Elio himself, will have more to say about that. He will be our guest in two weeks and we'll get some more information from him on the writing process. But I wanted to sort of cap off this world building talk and, and how much George loves it with this quote that just ex kind of expresses how much fun he was having with this. Paris told us that George was writing like a man possessed. Westeros was just coming to life in his head and he would toss and turn at night with all sorts of ideas brewing. And then in the morning, he was off immediately to his office to get these things down. The output and the rapidity of it was astonishing. So that's, this is the same man that's like, I only write an extra house when I need to, or I only write the extra Valerian <laughs> word when I need to. So I wonder if it's... He didn't see how much need he had. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if part of it is that... I only that, write an extra house every five minutes, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if part of it is that he just... Now that it's so big and it's so compl not complete, but so full and over this, uh, it's so much going on that 
it has its own life and that makes it more fun for him to add to it. When it was newer and not fully fleshed out and so much darkness on the corners of the maps and so much things that weren't explained, maybe that was a big chore. But now that so much of that is done, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but something changed, right? <laughs> maybe a lot of something's changed. I wanted to say a couple more things too on this, if you don't mind. Absolutely, go for it. Just right the first uh, little inlay of the book is a bunch of houses. Yeah. Which I, I bet even since this book was made, I wish I knew the timing better, but there's no way this is all the houses, even though there's got to be like a hundred here. I bet there's more still. And there was a time when I probably only could have named maybe, I mean, even when I was kind of deep into it, I probably only could have named seven or 10 of these. Now I might be able to name 50 of them, but there's still 50 more I couldn't name. Yeah. It's just impressive how much he's come up with <laughs> and how much there is to know. And, and again, how this book's art kind of, goes along with that yeah there's and, so uh, many so much good art it really is fantastic there's a really yeah. great um they, they used to be more popular these sparkle quizzes that you should try sean where you can um answer name every a song of ice and fire house or name them based on their sigil or any other uh theme like that but you could test yourself let's see how many you can name <laughs> yeah. yeah i bet i do better than average but i know i would not ace it <laughs> you type in a word like egg on and it's like 50 sometimes and it's like that character is not even in the <laughs> like you're talking about Aegon the Conqueror like he doesn't actually appear in the five novels but he's mentioned you know like 50 sometimes when I was younger and played D&D a lot and I was usually the DM what like sort of a goal of mine is I wanted everything to I wanted anything that characters did to be potential I wanted to be ready for mm. it and I wanted everything to make sense so if they any random shop they wanted to go into in town I wanted there to be a person with a name and a feature and a personality, you know, I, I would, I was way, way too deep, honestly. <laughs> I prepare 40 characters and they would interact with seven of them, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but I can just imagine like Martin is professionally doing what I was doing, what I was attempting to do as a kid. He's like, just turned it into one of the most successful careers <laughs> of anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it's just exciting for me to think about the, the what he gets to do and what he's created already and how much more there still is to go. So yeah, I super appreciate it. Yeah, if you think about it, it's an interesting way. I'm sure there's a lot of other folks out there who are listening that have played D&D and have done DMing or played maybe maybe not D&D, but something similar. And I'm the same. I played plenty of D&D and I was usually the DM as well, or at least a large percentage of it. And I try to think of it in some some ways like that, like putting it in these terms, like this is George's campaign. <laughs> he's, he yeah. sure is good at writing characters. <laughs> His NPCs, <Yeah>. George's <laughs> NPCs are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say as well, we don't have a much reason to mention the TV show during the World of Ice and Fire coverage. It'll occasionally come up, but... Less so probably than we did um, when we're trying to suss out what plots are yet to come out because we're not doing a, uh, nearly as much of that with the world of ice and fire. But it does make me think of the intro to the show, this book, the Astro Lab and the the castles being constructed and, and shifting venues because that's the way this book works, right? You go from one region, you get a full history or like an overview of its full history. So it's kind of like you watching those castles rise. It's like the history playing out, but, but kind of rapidly. And then you go to another region and there's some overlap because, for example, we're starting today with the Dawn Age. But when we go to each individual region, a lot of times that takes you back to the early times, maybe not all the way to the Dawn Age, but to the Age of Heroes, potentially. Um, and in some cases, back to the Dawn Age. So we're going to be jumping back and forth. We're going to be going all over the place in terms of time and um, ideas. So, you know, strap in and let's have some fun. I believe I mentioned there was 
you know, less characters in the world of Ice and Fire, less even than Fire and Blood, but they're more related to A Song of Ice and Fire. For example, Tywin is going to be pretty big later, Ares. And then, of course, characters that are sort of straddle like Aemon to a lesser extent, guys like Duncan Egg. Quote from Nina here that I appreciate. She says, there's a funny irony to Yandel's statement that what one of them, i.e. learned men, does not know is known to another and little remains truly unknown if one seeks far enough. Yandel will make a number of statements in the world of Ice and Fire that readers know to be wrong, either because he is deliberately withholding the truth or because he himself legitimately does not know differently. But readers know the truth thanks to alternate sources, leaving little indeed truly unknown. And that is a unique aspect of this book, isn't it? That's one of the things I want to get into first before we start with the Dawn Age, is, is things like Robert being crossed out and Joffrey being crossed out and Tommen being there instead, because this is an in-world book. It's not like... The Silmarillion, for example, this book was written by a character who lives in the world. You you wrote in their notes, for example, how do we know how old Yandel is? Well, it's because he wrote it himself. <laughs> he wrote the book and he says he wrote his own age. So like, okay, well, I guess that's it then. <laughs> and that's really neat. Yeah, that gives it? us a good marker for other events too. Yeah, right? yeah. We So we're like wondering, this is something we can talk about with Elio in a couple of weeks is like, where do you picture this character right now? Like he's alive right now in the story. He's hanging out at the Citadel maybe. Maybe he's hanging, maybe he passes Sam or Pate in the halls. Uh, maybe he's at King's Landing trying to give this book to Cersei or something, <laughs> or to Tommen uh, through Cersei, you know, something like that. And things just keep happening. Yeah, gonna, uh, so I'm it gets delayed. Say, I picture him at King's Landing, that that's where we will see him. Okay, yeah. And he's there with his book. So that's a question. That's a question for everybody. Do you think we will see Maester Yandel? And of course, he's not going to be a, a big character, <laughs> but like George could put a sentence in there just to just to give us a nod. A maester who's at court trying to get Tommen's attention. Yeah. I, I think 100% that that will happen, personally. Yeah, I feel pretty strongly that it will, too. It'll be hard for him to resist. <laughs> so, so, John, do you think that he'll show up at King's Landing or at Old Town? Or at all? I think King's Landing is a good guess, either. I think he'll show up at all, for sure. And I want to hope that it'll be more than just a passing sentence. Mm. But I, I can't decide if I think it'll be I wonder if, could we have him hand the book off to Sam to bring to King's Landing? I don't Ooh, know. I would love that. That'd be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Good idea. So folks, float your ideas out there. As, as, you, as always, as I said before, you can, you can certainly ask questions. You can ask them ahead of time on Patreon or Discord or Facebook or Twitter or wherever else you interact with us. But you can also ask them live and we'll uh, get to them in good time. To his most esteemed and gracious lord, Robert Joffrey slash out Tommen, <laughs> Robert slash out Joffrey slash out Tommen, the first of his name, king of the Andals and the Roinar and the first men, lord of the seven kingdoms and protector of the realm. Yandel, humble maester of the citadel, wishes thousandfold prosperity now and forever and wisdom unmatched. Why, thank you, Yandel. <laughs> That's very nice of him to wish us that. Mm. Wait, he's wishing that to Tommen. Oh, what a jerk. No. Um, so Maester Yandel, as you said, there's co-authors on this book. Basically, Yandel is Ilio and Linda, and Gildane is George, Archmaester Gildane. Most of what Ilio and Linda did was fill in gaps, create names of books, add in detail, and then George would accept it or not. And then he would add a lot of his own. Of course, most of it was written by George. But uh, their Ilio and Linda's contributions were significant. Now, of course, Fire and Blood is also an in-world book. Fire and Blood is Archmaester Gildane's book. 
Maester Yandel wrote this book, World of Ice and Fire, and he refers to Fire and Blood when writing this book. Uh, some of that was actually clarified, arguably retconned after the fact when this book was published. A few things were changed. A few things that were about the publishing didn't go quite so smoothly. Some of the things they wanted to try uh, maybe didn't work out so great, but nothing big, just small things. Like the, um, some of y'all may remember that they originally wanted to have ink blots on some of the stuff about Summerhall to make it or to make it look like it had been lost, like uh, as a way to um, kind of playfully show that this information is missing. But the publishers nixed that idea because they said it would look like a real misprint. People <laughs> they're are like, idiots. That's why. <laughs> like, no, it'll like, actually look like legitimately a think this. Yeah, people will think that it's uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they scratched that idea, for example. Um, so there were little things like that they wanted to try. They couldn't all do that. But it makes me think too, like uh, as Nina pointed out, this book as an in-world source being presented to a king in power. Well, there's certain things he's just not going to say, right? He's not going to, for example, bring up the rumor that Tywin had a a passageway to uh, Chataya's. Like, that's not going to make the world book when that family's still in power and the author is standing there in front of the Iron Throne like, please take my book. Like, he's not going to put aggressively damning information about the ruling family in there. And that's that's realistic, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, there's several factors when you consider the source. One is that, you know, whether or not the source, I don't know, is trustworthy, like whether you can trust them to be honest about the facts. Yeah. Right? And and there's going to be, sometimes someone might be blatantly lying, trying to cover something up. Sometimes someone might just be tactful, might omit certain things. But on top of that, they might just not know. Yeah. Right? They might right. have certain, and not, in an insulting way, but they might just have certain ignorances. They weren't present for something or they weren't told something um, or they're not old enough to have experienced something, whatever it might be. Yeah, your example, Aziz, of um, Tywin's uh, tunnel is a good one because he doesn't know. Yandel would not know that. He doesn't even know it exists. But if he did know, he wouldn't share it. Yeah, So it's a case of both, but uh, (laughs) definitely he doesn't know. Very true. Or in like an obvious case where he says like, there's no giants anymore. It's like, well, we saw them. (laughs) See, see, by the way, we're going to get into all that later um, a bit more, but I think it's so interesting how Eamon reports all this Castle Black stuff. Like there were maesters there before. Were they not reporting? Yeah, he just, ha- just it hasn't been like I guess the they haven't seen giants in a while and so, yeah that's I guess my that that's what I had to take from it is that yeah that they hadn't seen giants and Marwin also is like a, you know kind of makes that mention of how they don't really trust Eamon as part of why they yeah. you know so maybe like some of his words aren't getting disseminated to the rest of the citadel but yeah you're right that's uh, but that's a great example of how this applies to current stuff as well you could see how that the, the- prior maesters may not have been reporting for a number of reasons. One, I can imagine the wall being like the crappiest maesters being sent there. Mm-hmm. The, the, the most reluctant or the most almost as a punishment to go there. The ones who are Amen is or the ones who like had committed a crime at the Citadel, maybe like they're oh, like, ooh, yeah. two birds, one stone. Let's well, maybe they would have sent Kyber in there maester. if he had stayed. <laughs> if they had kicked him out. But entirely. you can see how Amen would be <laughs> similar to John, someone who actually did have a certain honor or commitment or whatever. And so would fulfill the role differently, would take it more seriously, put more effort into it, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, for example, right now, like Sam, John wants Sam to train to be their maester. But like normally the, the, the Citadel would make that call. But who would they send? And, and it's a 
misses a good opportunity for us to jump ahead a little bit to a question Nina proposed. It's like, how does this get chosen in general? She says, I continue to be curious as to which maesters get sent to serve at castles and which maesters stay on as sort of a per- as permanent scholars at the Citadel. Like, like Yandel's basically one of those. He says, it's Yandel even says he was, quote, blessed to continue at the Citadel to serve the archmaesters and aid them in all that they did. And, it's, and then it continues. But whether Nina wonders, is that a great honor as he took it? Or is it actually sort of a, a demotion? Is it like the difference between someone who, you know, just stays in grad school forever, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but right. Is that the equivalent here where he's just kind of sort of permanently in academia rather than going out into the world and and teaching and doing stuff? I'm not sure, but I'd lean that way that he says sees it as an honor, but maybe socially it's seen otherwise by some people. Now, of course, that's in the eye of the beholder, but judging by what Westerosi might think. In other words, he might not see it the way other people do. <laughs> yeah, like if, yeah. if he were to have asked the council, the archmaesters, what his placement, you know, could be, I think yeah. he would have asked to stay at the Citadel. I think you're probably right. Yeah. But they might have also chosen that because they knew that he wasn't well suited to other postings. Yeah, he might just day. be super a super scholar and not as broadly skilled like he may he may stink at healing you know and and like maesters have to have a broad skill set to serve at a castle so maybe he just he's just like i'm really good at history but i'm not that good at anything else yeah whereas i think there are there are likely were other maesters who like dreamed about a posting at a nice castle and a nice place Mm. and instead they just had to stay at the citadel or they got sent to like fair isle or something and they wanted to be you know in king's landing yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to think about because you know I, I, sometimes maesters maybe leave a castle to go back and become an archmaster, but it seems like that would be rare because if you're studying in a castle, how are you able to really focus on one topic? Like the archmaster of healing, for example, that's the guy that found uh, archmaster uh, Edgerin is the one who found Yandel when he was just a baby. Arch, he was the Archmaster of Healing, which is the silver rot, ring, rod, and mask. Now, how is it that you become an expert at healing if you're off serving in a castle? Seems like you would have to be studying at the Citadel to really maximize your potential there. On the other hand, if you're out in the field, you, you might get more hands-on experience with, with healing and things like that. So I don't know. It's it, it, it subject matter dependent, I think, in some cases. It might depend a lot on which castle you go to. Bigger castles or bigger houses might have multiple maesters. Yeah. And so you might get training from them or time to focus on one thing or another. Some might be involved in more wars. And so you get more hands-on experience with healing, but maybe less with history, but et cetera. I can see it going a lot of ways, like especially when I think in terms of like a, a military career, mm. there are some like cush jobs, right? Where you're in an office with an air conditioner, maybe you're even in Hawaii or San Diego or something, where someone else gets sent off to Iraq or Korea. Mm. But which one do you think is more likely to get promoted? You know, yeah. one person might spend a year or two in nicer conditions, but the other one is building the resume better. And uh, so it's sometimes it's almost a punishment to get the quote unquote nicer job. Yeah when you think about the long term. And this maester's still young, right? I, I, if I'm right, he's only 19 or 20? Well, he's, no, now, he was born in 272, and now it's about the year 300 to 301. So he's about 28, 29 now. Okay, yeah. okay. And so I can imagine through his life, he might change his opinion. He might realize after a certain amount of time at the Citadel, he might be like, I really need to go get some real world experience if I want to progress. But he also might not have, he might not be ambitious. 
he yeah, might be happy true. just to have his nose buried in books and doesn't want to become an archmaster or whatever. So you can also imagine in addition to like what might be good for a career or what one individual might want or even what the castle or this uh, a house or a citadel might need. On top of all that, there's a certain randomness to like who's available right now, who got sick or who's up next or et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. there's who know you can imagine Mark could probably write a whole book about the Citadel <laughs> Maesters and their adventures. That would be and fun their if he did. Intrigue. <laughs> yeah, and he he's clearly inspired by this process. Not Martin. Well, yes, also Martin, but Yandel. He because he writes that that preface as part of his preface that we're actually have a section later in this episode for us to talk about that, or maybe at the beginning of next time, depending. But he's he's very he's just enthralled by the process. He loves the idea of teaching. He thinks it's a noble goal to teach what there is to be taught and to have that be spread to as many people as possible. Like, remember, he dreams of it being read to poorer families. Like, I think part of his his ideal here is to let knowledge spread farther than the Citadel. I think he, one of his conceits is that this is the kind of book that can go outside of academia. Even though he is maybe buried in academia, he, he perceives his book as something that could go out and be read by common folk, which is not a normal goal for people at the Citadel that we've seen. Like uh, maybe it's just something that we haven't explored or, or been made party to, but it feels like this is a little bit out of the ordinary in a really good way. And that's also kind of similar to what Elio and, and Linda were doing in the first place with gathering. They took it upon themselves to track all these things that George was doing that were stacking up so many houses, so many sigils, so many house words. Uh, eventually he started using them as a source, but like, hey, which, what color eyes did you know, this character have, and they would be able to look it up for him. That's what we were talking before, where that starts to, it starts to be too much for him to remember it all. But yeah, like Candel, <laughs> they wanted to make it accessible to the common folk, to yeah. the average person. There's a bunch of other people well, we, who Yeah, care. we can't, and not everyone looks up the wiki or is able to use Search of Ice and Fire. Some people, you know, they just want a compendium book that they can read to their poor wife. And that's <laughs> kind of what we're doing with this podcast, right? We gather a lot of the different sub stories, the stories between the lines and expand on them and and make them more presentable than the way they're presented in the books, because in the books, they're subtle, they're under the radar, they're scattered throughout the text. So, yeah, um, I just want to bring all oh, love was, that same stuff. Can I bring something up from the chat? The Joe Magician brought up um, Vagon Targaryen, who refused to rejoin the royal family at all costs and stayed buried in his books forever. That people refuse posts when you're That's a great point. like a Targaryen, you maybe are more likely to be able to refuse a post, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know, you know Yandel I, I, needs to meet oh. that kid that Jamie brought, the Blackwood kid, the Lucas, uh, oh. or not Lucas, um, yeah. Hoster Blackwood, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> or Tyrion, yeah, or that's, that's what that's what Jamie thinks. He should meet Tyrion. <laughs> All of them need to gather at a round say, table. I don't know if George would get into this very much, but it is something that I don't know. It's a, several times in history, learned people have tried to keep the information to themselves. They think it's whether they think they're they have more of a right to it or the information is sacred in some way, but knowledge but is power. For example, yeah. the, the church, the Bible, like it was only in Latin at like transcribing a Bible into English. People were put to death. Yeah. That was, that was like a major a sin. Part right. of a split in the Catholic church. So yeah, the, the, there were people who thought that it shouldn't be this prestigious, unique, special information that you, some people got to go listen to sometimes. It should be everyone. Everyone should just have a Bible and read it every day. It should yeah. be God is in all our lives, you know, and you were 
put to death. You were burned at the stake for that thought. It's wild, know? right? Like, <laughs> but yeah. you can kind of understand why. Like, I don't agree with it, but you can kind of understand why they have that attitude. Which is, you don't want anyone it just secures their own power. It does secure their own power, but they're in terms of the the ethical side of it. Like, I, I'm not going to defend the unethical side of it, which is that part. But there is some ethics to it, which is like people just misinterpret things or or or, or create, True. you know you read a text that you're not prepared, that you're not properly educated to understand, you know, and then you, and then all of a sudden you're disseminating disinformation or false things like that. That does happen too. But of course this power gets abused. It's more about holding on to power. Um, they've, you might realize that there are discrepancies within the Bible. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, oh no. Yeah. And, uh, that, so that's a really big deal. And you're right. And that, that gets into what we were just saying with the Yandel's not going to write aggressively damning information about Tywin Lannister when that man's in power or his family's still in power. So yeah, it, it, these things all really tie well together. So I appreciate the realism there. Aha, tie well. Yes, that's that's Tywin's, <laughs> Tywin's ancestor. <laughs> yeah, even this character who seems to be motivated to get the truth out He's still going to be careful about exactly what truth he writes. Yeah, he's not uh, he's not stupid about he's not um, ignorant to the risk to himself. Um, yeah. yeah, I really do wonder if if about you know we talked about him maybe bumping into Sam or Pate. That's one I wonder about. Like he should I don't know if Pate's aware of him. I mean I don't know if he's aware of Pate. Pate's younger than him and is kind of a failure. Yandel is like the the a guy in a similar situation that actually rose out of it. Like there's probably lots of servants at the Citadel that came about in a way sort of like, you know, not necessarily left there as an infant because Pate came when he was about 13, meaning they go there or are, are left there or given over and expected to just be a servant. There's lots of servants at the Citadel and that's what Yandel was probably expected to be, but he had a talent that, most people aren't going to have. And he was able to luckily get rescued from that life. And it, the person that rescued him from that life was Archmaester Walgrave, which if that name was familiar, that is the maester that Pate works with, the one who's gone senile that he stole the key from. So obviously this was before he went senile because Yandel is, says that Walgrave taught him how to write. So he's the man that made all this possible, or at least was it a, a crucial step along the way in making the world of ice and fire happen in world. So that's a pretty big deal. And just can, like, you, like you said, Sean, uh, the fact that we know when he was born allows us to place a context around his life. This is, he's one year older than Tyrion and he was born the same year as Tysha because Tysha and Tyrion are close in age. This is also in that short span where Ares and Rayella were just losing kids left and right. They would have a child, it would die. They would have a child, it would die. They lost like four or five kids in a few years. So one of those kids was born this year. It was um, one of the Aegons. So when the defiance of Duskendale broke out, which was sort of Ares's mania had really been building to that point, his paranoia and all these dead children of his were really, that's not going to help. Uh, that so he was Yandel was five when the defiance of Duskendale broke out, and thus he was ten when Robert's Rebellion broke out. So if he had just been a few years older, he would have probably been drafted or or levied to fight in it. And then of course that would that was the fate of an awful lot of people. Uh, Robert's Rebellion wasn't very long, only about a year. But yeah, old old town and the Citadel weren't terribly impacted by the war, relatively speaking. Like the war didn't come there, but it was there were certainly men drafted from there, like the common folk were taken and sent off to war. So 
Yeah, I mean, that could have been Yandel's fate, but uh, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, a couple other... Yet. Yet, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll see. Yeah, since he's still Story's alive, alive. you're right, since he's still out there. <laughs> so there's uh, three other Archmaesters I want to mention real quick. We mentioned Walgrave and how he taught Yandel how to write. But we also have Gildane, who is George R. R. Martin directly. His He's probably the Archmaester of history, which is copper. Uh, so he would, that's why he's got this connection to Yandel, who was almost certainly has a copper link, maybe no other links, but uh, probably has a few. So again, I'll say Gildane wrote Fire and Blood in World. And originally it was that Gildane died in Summerhall. But in order to make things line up better, they actually changed that. George changed it to, he survived Summerhall and died early in the reign of Robert's uh, reign. That way, Gil Dane was able to personally give Yandel permission to use his books. And that way, Gil Dane's work would be complete. Because Gil Dane is, did a work of the Targaryens. And if you have Gil Dane dying in Summerhall, then you have to have some other author write about the rest of Jaehaerys and Ares. Um, by having Gil Dane live the whole thing, live through the whole uh, Targaryen reign, he's able to have written a full reign of the Targaryens. The offshoot of that means that he, uh, uh, besides surviving Summerhall, that explains how he got to be an Archmaester. Because an Archmaester shouldn't be posted at a castle. The Archmaesters reside at the Citadel. So it would make sense then that Gildane survived Summerhall, wasn't reposted somewhere. He stayed at the Citadel after Summerhall was destroyed. And then at some point, he was promoted to Archmaester. Maybe we'll even see Yandel get that Archmaester's job. He's probably too young for it, though. <laughs> but that would be one other way for this to sort of appear in the story. Yeah, I wonder how young the youngest Archmaester has ever been. That's a good question. You know, I wonder what's if the, we you could... Know, uh... okay, just if we're comparing it to academia, you know, I yeah. feel like probably they ought to be at least 45, 50. Yeah. It's, a, it's an guess. older person's posting, usually. <laughs> like, looking at... It's like the equivalent of, oh. like, tenured professors, usually. Like, it's it, it implies time. <laughs> yes. How old is the Citadel? How old is our Maesters? Oh, gosh. How old is that concept? We don't Older know. Older than Westeros. It's so old that we don't know. But yeah. Like tens of thousands of years old? Not tens of thousands, but... But, but thousands? Okay. Yeah, but the, the, after the long night. Yeah, and places that the Citadel, you know, in Old Town are even predate yeah. um, the Maesters and the Citadel, so... there's There was learning established there before it was called the Citadel. There was a king, I think it was Periston, who specifically wanted to he he got the idea to like an early idea of of university of con that concept and was like he he spent his his wealth or some of it in recruiting people to come and establish a center of learning that eventually grew into the citadel so it's it's kind of hard to say exactly and this is uh is definitely was established as the citadel after the long night before that it's a little harder to say whether it was there at all it, it's tricky i need to refresh myself on some of that but yeah it's it's there's definitely no hard and fast date. It's interesting to think about in general and, and maybe even add some insight to things. But I was what prompted my question was, if it's old enough, there's probably someone very young. There's probably some time of war or famine or disease Good where point. there would have been enough wiped out that the oldest maester that existed might have only been 29. You know, so. That's a great point. Yeah, they just wouldn't have enough of the older folk. Wouldn't they? Uh, too many of them died off because of some awful thing. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, out of thousands of years of history, certainly there would have been. And we know for a fact that uh, we talked about it uh, just a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, 
Picel, Grand Maester Picel, and how he described the plague outbreak at uh, in Old Town when he was young that killed what like a third of the Maesters or something like that. I think it, it might, I can't remember the exact number, but it was some staggeringly high number. And you're right to suggest that if it didn't happen in history, it, it probably happened in history and probably happened more than once. Yeah. Something along those lines. Uh, the ones who would know the most about it are guys like Archmaester Edgerin, who I repeat is the one who found Yandel. And of course, there's that funny quote where Yandel thinks that they saw his destiny, which is a, kind of a funny thing for a maester to say, but he was a child when he, when he said that. So <laughs> uh, more on that later. But Archmaester Edgerin was the Archmaester of Silver uh, Healing at the time, and he was wanting to test swaddling on Yandel, which is like, hey, good. You know, uh, I'm, not, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure that in modern times, swaddling is a big two thumbs up. Big babies like that. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, George is a football fan, and I wonder if this name Edgerin is a reference to the football player Edgerin James. It's spelled one letter different, which is what George always does, right? Joffrey Jeffrey. Rogar Roger, right? <laughs> you know, that's just George loves to take the change I one thought letter. It was like as Edgarin, like related to the name Edgar. It could be, but that might be what inspired him to do it. Or Edgar and James might be related yeah, to the name. Edgar. Yeah, yeah. That's true. We'll know for sure if this Archmaester ever does anything with horses. <laughs> right? Wasn't Edger and James for the Colts? The yes, he did Colts. play for the Colts. And that's part of why that's part of why I suspect it because Edger and James went to the Hall of Fame. And there's only about 350 football players all time who went to the Hall of Fame. It's really hard to get in. And the Colts are in the same division as George's favorite team or one of his two favorite teams, the New York Jets. So they would that's right, isn't it? They're in the same division? I think so. <laughs> it might have changed because the Colts oh. are they're not even the I guess they were the Indianapolis Colts. It, it just the divisions and the team names have changed several times. I don't know. I forgot about Martin that. Would have been writing this, but but anyway, he that would have been someone that was a foe of his teams. <laughs> Either way, <Yeah. laughs> so anyway, I don't know. That's just a funny guess because a foe of his a foe. Nice. Because I looked up Edger and I googled that name, and it's just ever it's just all Edger and James, and then another kid named Edger and who's also a college football player, <laughs> probably named after Edger and James. <laughs> So then there's Archmaester Ebros, who is currently alive. He's around. He exists. He is the current Archmaester of, of healing. He's a big believer in mother's milk and the healthful properties of mother's milk. So clearly the Citadel's on the right track with some of this stuff, because that's another one that's like, yes, mother's milk is definitely proven to be amazing. He's also currently studying the butterfly plague, the NAS plague, the, you know, that carries that incredible sickness. And he was actually the one that was portrayed on the show. Um, Jim Broadbent, the actor, played him. Uh, so we actually got to see him on screen. Uh, so, by the way, yeah, Jets are in a different division. They are in a different division. Yeah, so AFC maybe they used to be East versus AFC South. Okay, so, cool. Anyways, yeah, 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 yeah. AFC South wasn't around back back then, but it may have been when he wrote this book. Anyway, so that's cool. So Archmaster Ebros is still around. We may see him. Um, he's he gets referred to in the in the prologue of Peace for Crows, talking about you don't want to miss his. Discussion on urine, you know, <laughs> that's that gets referenced there. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so finally, then Pate. I mentioned Pate, but Pate was born in 282, so about 10 years after Yandel. Yandel already had his first link when he was uh, three years after Pate was born. Pate earns no links <laughs> in five years, so yeah, that's why I think maybe Yandel 
doesn't know Pate because Pate is into, you know, isn't a standout. Well, he might because he's with Walgrave and Yandel has a fondness for Walgrave being the one who taught him how to write and all that. But it's more likely that Pate is aware of Yandel than the other way around. So let's talk about the reverse of this in-world knowledge, which is that there's so many things that normally we have a book that's presented as a, from a narrator, narrator's perspective, which this isn't. Um, it feels that way because that's what we're used to with books like this. Right away, we learn things, we're presented with information that this maester slash author doesn't know things that we know better. And there's two main categorizations, I would say, and I'm definitely open to hearing other ways of categorizing this or, or managing it. One is that just the straightforward one, like we mentioned, like the giants. He says giants are extinct. We know that's false. There's a lot of other examples like that. Some of them are straightforward because we personally saw it. Others are because someone like Bloodraven tells us that it is uh, in opposition to what the maesters say. And we tend to believe Bloodraven. In some cases, his, it's backed up with evidence. But in, um, So right away, we know this is a very different sort of book. It's like a POV chapter in a lot of ways, which is that, you know, the characters in the book have, they're wrong about things. It's an unreliable narrator. So it's very unusual to have an in-world book or a, a, a narrator-style book that isn't reliable and a trusted source. Like, he's an academic. He's a maester. But he's still not trustworthy on a lot of subjects. Not, <laughs> and the other one is technology, right? Uh, for example, they just don't have technological advancement that we would have. They're not aware of things like DNA or paleontology hasn't been invented. You know, they barely, they just, they have just the, the barest sense of archaeology and geology, things like that. Carbon dating. Right, yeah. So they have like, like in a minute, we're going to see Archmaster Periston and some other of these characters believe that the world is only 40,000 years old, which to us is, that's a ridiculous theory. <laughs> you know, like there's no way it's only 40,000 years old. It's probably... Maybe the history of <laughs> humans is only 40,000, but even that's... Uh, that <laughs> yeah, so we just couldn't be like, okay, well, he's clearly wrong. Now, we don't know what the right answer is. We just know it has to be a lot longer than that. And there's also, so there's, but there's a side note to that, which is not just technology, but it's also magic, which we don't fully understand either, but we know is a real thing that they are, that they, we have more knowledge of than, than Yandel does, right? Even though we don't know that much, we certainly know more than he does. He thinks it's pretty much gone. And you wonder about that, like this is, a, a, maybe is George making a statement on people who are a little too buried in their, buried in uh, books and not out in the real world? Because like, Yandel didn't go personally verify that. Yandel didn't go go do go go north and check to see the giants are gone. He just referred to other sources. He just was like, okay, well, the Citadel thinks giants are extinct. I accept that. That's realistic. There's a lot of real world sources that we use that we know are probably wrong, but we just don't have another source. <laughs> There's no one else. Yeah. There's no other source ever on certain historical topics. And we can say, this guy's wrong about a lot of things. He's probably wrong about this, but we have nothing to contradict it. That's just the reality of it. We just don't have the answers. Sometimes things do come along a lot of times because of technology that do contradict it. We're still reluctant to accept it. Yeah, We're still reluctant to change what we believed for generations. So. That's a very good point. Yeah, like it, it's one thing for the academics to accept it. It's another thing for the rest of the world to let that sink in. Um, especially yeah. when you have things like religion that, that disagree with findings that can that, that can get real problematic. Can I say it? Or even to disseminate the information. Yeah. 
like nowadays, if academics discover something, they type articles on the internet, it spreads, everyone knows, there might be some debate or some disagreement, but at least the information gets out to everyone almost immediately. Yeah. But even 50 years ago in our world, I think how long it would take for some discovery some scientists made before it's like in a classroom for students to learn. You know? Or some big money interest buries it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to say I learned a, a weird thing on Twitter, slightly related, which is that basically it because it was too hard to keep the records, people who ho- who keep thoroughbred horses, <laughs> they just decided to go with one birthday. Like they decided instead of bothering with this thing that we're all going to mess up on, let's just say they're all born on January 1st or August 1st. All horses are born on one day. And this is a fact. If you were to race your thoroughbred horse that was born on December 31st, that horse is one year old. <laughs> and that, I mean, just that's just for ease in, in modern day. Like we, we can have computers. You can easily log when your horse was born. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is wild. It's weird too. Like. What? <laughs> like, how did this come about? Like, why? What was the impetus for this? They're like, yeah, we'll just... We just... They just lost too many horse records. <laughs> Said, That's why so bother? Strange. Yeah, man. I don't get it. Yeah, like, even in even in world, there's a debate. It doesn't come up very much, but when... How do you date the conquest? Like, the conquest didn't happen in one day, but we have Aegon's conquest is like day one, Aegon, the year one. But the conquest took several years. So they date it from the point at which the crown was put on his head. That's the moment that, that it ended, even though there were still wars with Dorne and, and the Ironborn and stuff after that. But <laughs> it's like, so some in world there's AL and AC and they're like two years apart and, and people just like kind of throw them out there as if they're the same. <laughs> and it's not really worth it to correct. It's like, no, that's AL, not AC. Like you, you really sound like a jerk if you're going to go around <laughs> like getting hung up on that. Like, yeah, but what's the difference? Like, well... I don't know, actually. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the fundamental the difference. The difference it makes. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's not like, well, you know, is Eamon 100 or 102? No, <laughs> he's 102. No, he's <laughs> But uh, yeah, so these things, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. Like in the world, like, for example, AD and BC. Before COVID. And- Before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a now. new BC now. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> it's the biggest world-changing event, probably, at least in terms of like something that affects everyone. You know? <laughs> but the reason I brought that up is because like BC is like, that's obviously from a Christian perspective. Like a lot of historians just use that date even outside of the West. But some of them don't. I mean, the Chinese New Year is not on the same date as our New Year. And there's other New Year's that are different. Like, I mean, that's why they went to Common Era, CBC yeah. and CE. That's what they teach you to use now, like in, in, in college. I mean, I use Common Era, not AD. Yeah, right. Which is uh, a difference from when I was in college. We still used AD. I don't think we use CE in the 90s. I think it's more of a relative, like, yeah, recently. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I believe that I yeah. was in school when it changed. Oh, like, I'm pretty okay. sure that when I was in elementary school, they taught us AD, and by the time I was in high school, it was C. Yeah. That's really neat. So George is, I think he's, George is sort of weighing in a lot of these subjects, sort of with subtlety, or in some cases more directly, like, real history is fraught with the, some of the same problems. We have real sources that are bad. We have wonky dating problems like racehorses and <laughs> AD and Common Era. And our friend Daniele Bellelli of History on, uh, on Fire podcast, one time he made a really f- fantastic quote. I wish I had gotten the exact text. He talked about how so much of history is 
Like people talk about only a fraction of history is recorded, but that's underselling it. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. <laughs> because like, like, like if you and I were to have a conversation or three of us were to have a conversation offline, like not recorded, because this one's recorded, so it is being recorded. It is allegedly, uh, theoretically, you know, recorded for posterity. It's out there. But any other thing we say that's not recorded, that's... It's pretty unimportant, probably, but it is technically history. Like the kind of conversations that people are having anytime right now, that's history. That's just lost history. You may not think of it that way, but it is, right? And so that's why when you, when you put it, frame it like that, you can see, yeah, wow, we really. We create more history than we ever have. Yeah, there's just more people, too. Yeah, because of that, just too. But, years, but just yeah. like in terms of like, we communicate we say more words now than we ever have because mm. of using the internet like human humanity has never communicated the way that we communicate now point. we've never created this much history uh, we've never destroyed this much history I, like think about I mean, something like it, snapchat instagram stories deleting your twitter those are just gone constantly we're just mm. constantly losing history there's never going to be a record of that and there's and, and you're right, even if you take out communication or verbal communication or the written word, I think it was like the year 2015 or 16. It was some breaking point recently where humans took more pictures in that year than they had taken in the entire history of the world before that. Yeah. And that's another thing like that is pictures are recorded like that. That is history that's being kept like that's a good Not example. All of, I mean, Not yeah, all. Of them. Yeah, I'm just saying there's yeah. a lot more of it. A lot of them are being deleted. You're right. But there's just more. I would I would tell you, I, I would guess that there are more photos and videos deleted than there are kept. Oh, I agree with you. I'm just saying that just the, the scale of how many that are kept <laughs> gives you a sense of how many are lost. It's like, oh, my God, we have we have trillions. That means there's yeah. Numbers that we never even use. This quadrillions. Is my, my, my chance to tell you all <laughs> to please support the Internet Archive, the Wayback mm. Machine. It is, I think, one of the most important things in all of humanity. Go check out the Internet Archive. Give yeah, in money. terms of future humans, especially. You're right, Ashay. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, the ability to process all the history now is becoming as important as recording it. Yeah. There's so much. Right. We don't understand history in ways that we probably will understand later. Like things that we call impossible right now might not always be so. Like right now, we're discovering lost ruins that people thought would have been lost forever because they didn't imagine the technology that would one day come to allow us to find it again. Like they're, they're literally taking trash dumps from ancient times <laughs> and using radial carbon dating to find writing that's faded, like using laser technology to find faded writing from trash dumps from thousands of years ago. You know, like no one would have ever, like people in that time would not have, even the most like forward thinking person wouldn't be like, you know, one day they're going to be able to look in our trash and find out what, you know, <laughs> thousands of years from now. I was like, really? You know, I don't, I don't know that I give ancients a lot of credit for their imagination. I'm not sure anyone ever pictured that. <laughs> you know, one day they're gonna they're, one day they're gonna read the invisible ink on our dead trash. <laughs> like, really? Like that's that's DNA level yeah, stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting stuff with um, people who are trying to um, store the human mind. Whoa! Not because they think that we can do it now. We can't interpret the mind now. But the idea that if you figure out the right way to store it the technology will be such that in a hundred years you could decode the mind and read someone's mind, whether you could replicate it or make a new person or what the idea just that you could with new technology that we could read someone's mind 
just mm. through them saving the right neurons or the right brain cells, you know, etc. You're right. That's a really similar concept because it's like it's like we know the data is there. We just can't read. Yeah, it. we know it's there. Like it is there. You think, um, but it's a matter of like, well, what does the electricity in your brain like? If it's gone, is it gone and all that? Mm. And they're like these are real. Um, companies that exist that you can invest in and all that hmm. um that, that are doing this uh <laughs> saving some brains that's so neat yeah it's like futurama right like all every time we have these future ties, i always think of futurama and all those heads, yeah, heads. like true. yeah one day they'll be able to put those heads back on bodies but but <laughs> but should they <laughs> it's like the gi joe uh what was that that plot line gi joe serpentor where they made the uh i almost feel like we've even talked about this on the show before where they had the it was dna of genghis khan alexander the great napoleon <laughs> it was like all mixed together and that was the plot where like cobra was like running around all these tombs gathering the dna from all it was these... serpentor right? yeah serpentor serpentor yeah exactly yeah, yeah it was pretty cool <laughs> it was neat it's kind of that was a cool idea for a comic book plot line <laughs> Unlike A Song of Ice and Fire or The Real World, one thing that this book does for us, because of the wrong things, the things that the, that the maesters are wrong about, we can reverse engineer some of these things. What I mean by that is, for example, the book claims ravens could never actually speak. We know that they could because Blood Raven says they could. Unless he's lying and the children of the forest are backing his lie, we, we have very little reason to suspect he's lying. So... These uh, Yandel is sometimes citing fringe beliefs or legendary beliefs that the Citadel doesn't really accept or thinks doesn't exist anymore. But we know for sure they're there. Yeah, and understandably, but we know that they're real. So, for example, they could bring up some issue. We need to be on the lookout for that all the way through this book. When Yandel brings up a supernatural topic in order to dismiss it, the fact that he's bringing it up at all indicates that there are people in the world of Westeros that do believe it, they may, and they may have a good reason for having believed that in the first place. It may have be rooted in truth. There may be a grain of truth to those beliefs. So the raising of the issues only to dismiss them serves a great purpose, which is that maybe this shouldn't be dismissed. And sometimes they're wrong to a degree, right? For example, they dismiss skein changers as stories that have grown in the telling when we know that they're pretty accurate. But he says blood sacrifice used to, you know, exist in the north as recently as 500 years ago. Well, that's uh, that's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely right either, because we've got reason to suspect it might still be going on, right? So that's good example. Like the jar, the giants actually extinct? No, they're still around. This is a similar thing. Had this saying things are gone that aren't gone. Premature declarations of extinction, and not just of beings, but of beliefs and uh, supernatural concepts. What's interesting, too, is we see these fringe sources referred to, and we have prior knowledge of these fringe sources being accurate sources, like Septon Barth or Marwyn. Yandel will, like, say Septon Barth is wrong, but we're like, yeah, Septon Barth is probably right. <laughs> so that's really fun. We'll have to keep an eye on that. We have to keep our, uh, our alerts up, so to speak. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Let's start with the Dawn Age, shall we? This we, we took a little longer to get to the Dawn Age than we thought, but we knew this would wasn't unlikely to happen. We are welcoming of the rabbit holes of the discussions about the process of history and understanding. I thought that was that's exactly the kind of unscripted discussion I was hoping for. Uh, the one we just had, where uh, all three of us were were weighing in with some really important takes and personal experiences with our own uh, things that we've seen out in the world that reflect this sort of thing, and then a lot of y'all in chat. And presumably some of y'all who are listening to this after the fact will be able to weigh in as well. That's going to be what Valar Reed is for the World of Ice and Fire is like. There are none who can say with certain knowledge when the world began. Yet this has not stopped many maesters and learned men from seeking the answer. Is it 40,000 years old as some hold? Or perhaps a number as large as 500,000 or even more? It is not written in any book that we know, for in the first age of the world, the Dawn Age, men were not lettered. We can be certain that the world was far more primitive, however, a barbarous place of tribes living directly from the land with no knowledge of the working of metal or the taming of beasts. What little is known to us of those days is contained in the oldest of texts, the tales written down by the Andals, by the Valyrians, and by the Giscari, and even by those distant people of fabled Ashai. Yet, however ancient those lettered races, they were not even children during the Dawn Age. So what truths their tales contain are difficult to find, like seeds among chaff. What can most accurately be told about the Dawn Age? The Eastern lands were awash with many peoples, uncivilized, as all the world was uncivilized, but numerous. But on Westeros, from the lands of always winter to the shores of the summer sea, only two people existed, the children of the forest and the race of creatures known as the giants. As much as we can today, we're going to keep ourselves to the idea of what it was like before humans. There's a lot of, when we talk about the children of the forest and the giants, it's really tempting to talk about them amongst humans and how that inter- how those interactions go and how the children affected humanity. We're going to do that a little later. We're going to try to keep ourselves as much as possible to just children and giants only pre-human. And we'll probably unavoidably waver into human territory, but we'll do our best. So again, the 40,000 year theory is pretty, almost certainly way off, but it does have a real world corollary um, which George may have been working with. I know George is pretty well read, especially in history. I'm not sure how much geology and paleontology he reads, but that's roughly what modern scientists think is when early humankind, early Homo sapiens crossed into the Americas about 40,000 years ago. So that might be where George just pulled that number. He's like, I'll just use borrow that same number, but it might just be coincidence. And uh, But, but the, one of the reasons I think that is because George dates the long night 8,000 years ago. And the archaic age of the Americas, which is defined term by scientists, geologists, and paleo- not paleontologists, but because um, paleontology is older than that. Paleontology is, is technically anything that's 11,700 years or more, <laughs> which is, uh, I think it's the Holocene epoch. Anything in the Holocene epoch or before is paleontology. So the, basically, some of these dates kind of line up that George is using with some of the real world dates, but some of the, but it might be coincidence. I just wanted to throw that possibility out there. One of the things you talked about, or we talked about, is technology, and with the example Shea gave of like saving the information so that later 
generations that have the technology to understand it is a perfect example here. We don't have dating in Westeros. They can't date things. They don't have carbon dating. But we know through dating of our own world, large scale numbers, that some of these things are, are right or wrong, uh, like that 40,000 age of the year of the, of the world. So <laughs> other things we can't really question, but that one's uh, pretty straightforward. So uh, one point I want to raise here as well is that this is just Westeros we're talking about. We're going to also be coming back to the Dawn Age when we talk about Essos. Because the Dawn, as it says here, there were people already living in Essos before they were living in, in Westeros, which is part of why I liked using the archaic age and the 40,000-year date of early Homo sapiens crossing into the Americas, because that's similar to <clears throat> the concept of first men crossing the land bridge of Dorne into Westeros and then civilizing it and cultivating it from there. And that's another thing. Even the science in our world, even some of these sciences are new. Like, like I said, paleontology has only been around since roughly the 18th century, and it, it required geology and biology and archaeology to exist first. It's uh, very much in line with the conceit of what Yandel said about how knowledge is built on prior knowledge, which is something that I want to take time to discuss that separately because it's such an important concept, but we're going to refer to it frequently because... Well, again, because I think it's really important, even in the real world, especially in the real world, right? Like where we, the, you know, the people who we we're all standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. Um, we're all guided by those who came before us. But in particular, here we're focused on the information and the people that laid that out for us. Nina adds a point here. Yandel makes an important point when discussing the native races of Westeros, namely that humans were never native. To Westeros. That, this makes Westeros a land built on conquest. Every single human race which has come to Westeros has established itself by conquering the races, whether they were humans conquering non-humans or humans coming to conquer other humans. And so they like the first men fighting the children, the giants and the Andals fighting the first men and, and also the children and the Roinar coming in and fighting in Dorne and the Valyrians coming much more recently. So it's these uh, cycles of human incursions and, and human migrations, which is a lot of what real history is like, right? Doesn't that kind of sort of reflect a lot of our own history, Sean? Like what we learned about, say, movements of these large tribes in Europe and how sometimes the Romans would face, because uh, the Romans kept decent records, so that's a lot of where our history comes from on that side, is they, they would have like large tribes would move, uh, like their whole civilization would move and come into contact with Rome and they would end up fighting this entire civilization, entire race of, of mobile, hundreds of thousands of what they would call barbarians and uh, a variety of reasons why they would move like climate change or following herds or something like that. And a, a couple of thoughts are stirring in me here. In fact, uh, one is that his description, Yandel's description here is barbarous people, you know, before they knew how to work metal. Yeah. Well, they weren't necessarily, you know, I think when you think of barbers, barbarians, you think of they're just like wild and running around with clubs attacking and killing each other. They still had wine. They still had leaders and democracy, at least in, in our real world history, the barbarians of Europe that the Romans were going to conquer. They were civilized people. They had court systems. They had books, you know. But of course, the Romans that go to conquer them and take their gold and their treasures, they don't come back home and say, we conquered this just civil civilization out there. No, that we conquered these barbarians, these evil, mm. murderous barbarians out. We conquered them and 
now you should all be thankful we to brought us, civilization you know? so to the victors right yeah. to history mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and You're totally so right. yeah so a, a lot of what he might think of being barbarous uncivilized people might not have been and think also of uh, how history is first presented new information is first presented as we learn more and more we have new perspectives on it but when europeans came to america there were just savages in america well now we know there were aztecs and sioux and cherokee you know they weren't just like these people there were a bunch of different people and that's probably true of children of men and giants also yeah they probably weren't just giants they're probably different factions and whether it's based on geographical locations or cultural beliefs or whatever they probably weren't all just a homogenous society that had the same ideas and opinions and technology and everything else. Yeah, and we see a tiny bit of that with the children of the forest, not really on purpose, but the fact that in Essos, we have the Ifekevron, you know, that those are essentially the children of the forest, but clearly are different. So we we have seen two factions of children of the forest, but it is something that I think we, we don't see in the series or hear talk of, which is, yeah, the, probably the children of the forest were not a monolith. Yeah, there was they, almost certainly tribes yeah. <clears throat> within there. Just, yeah, and maybe different other cultural distinctions like the Northerns or the Southerners or Easterns or well, who knows yeah. how they did it. But And they probably were there for centuries the, in different time periods. They're mm-hmm. going to have gone through different alliances and wars and and growths and Absolutely. failures and et cetera. So. And, and it's just, a, it's a lot of it is just perception like the people humans would say they're primitive because they didn't advance technologically but at the same time they've got this like vast supernatural network that takes care of a lot of these things that would otherwise be perceived as needed for example it's like they have no it it says they have no letters they are not recording history well they were recording history the trees remember everything it's just our our ability to to understand the way they record things is is not there only to someone like bran and a few others have been um, have learned this. Um, maybe in, in long gone times, it was more common to know this, but uh, that wasn't recorded either. <laughs> and the humans that showed up at that time, how well were they recording things? For how yeah. long had they been recording things? Yeah, long. And what did they do when they showed up? They attacked and killed the other people. So wait, who are the barbarians yeah. exactly? <laughs> you know, uh, who are the uncivilized ones? And, and it seems like, and so much of this is judged by like levels of technology or perceived technology when really some of these, mm-hmm. some of these cultures had highly advanced social structures, right? Like they had a bet, like they had better government systems, which is like, that's harder to perceive in the future. And when I mean better, I mean that it works for them better. Like it causes less internal friction. Like it, it functions well. Uh, like a system that keeps resulting in civil wars would be an example of a system that's not a very good system. What For, for whatever details and features it has, if that's the end result constantly, you've got a bad system, right? So, for example, a lot of these so-called barbarian tribes were way more advanced with uh, gender equality, for example. and But the Romans would specifically say that's backwards. They would specifically say this is a cultural backward thing. They're like, no, men should dominate women. When you have equality, that's regressive, which, of course, I, I hope that y'all don't agree with the Romans on that one. But that is certainly, that was their perspective. That's another thing, just another thing to keep in mind. Like, things like cultural traditions like that a lot of times it takes a lot of work to get to that point. And then you can call that advanced or um, or at least it's gone through a lot of iterations to get where it is, which means it's uh, developed, you know? 
So really our perception is, is, is driving a lot of what we think here. And Yandel's is too. And George is very aware of that. Like he's really right away in this book, we're seeing all these things that he's wrong about. <laughs> it's not like these things come. It's not like George gradually gets you into the wrong stuff. It's, he gets writer as he goes on because the, the, the dates get more close to <laughs> recent. <laughs> so there's more opportunity to have good sourcing. I really wonder like, what other megafauna existed in the Dawn Age? You know, we have, there were great lions, apparently. There were unicorns. Maybe there's still a few of those around. Uh, obviously, mammoths and giants. I mean, giants are sort of megafauna. <laughs> they, I know they are. They are literally are megafauna. About, what about megaflora? Megaflora, yeah. Were there giant tulips? Giant roses? <laughs> yes, the, the golden roses of House giant Tyrell potatoes. used to be <laughs> giant potatoes. Whoa. Feed a whole family on one giant tater. the hobbits would love that Uh, Nina mentions the the sworn sword quote that refers to great elks of 20 hands or more which uh, that's a lot of hands that they have yeah uh, how many (laughs) how many fingers on all those hands their hands grew off their antlers (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they could pick a lot of berries really fast Yeah, <laughs> it's like they can when they go to do high five, it's more like high 20. <laughs> Extinct megalos, megaloceros, I don't know how to say that. Uh, megaloceros is a type of deer that is gone now. Um, that might be what George is referring to there. That's Nina's guess, and I, I like that guess. Aria here is mentions of cave bears in the mountains of the moon, which may be similar to the cave bears that went extinct here on Earth about. 24,000 years ago, but that might also be an example of something that was falsely declared extinct. And I mean in the real world, not, not in, in uh, Westeros. So that's all very interesting. I, well, you got to wonder, and this is a good opportunity for us to establish a recurring question that I want us all to be pondering. Now, I, this is applies whether you're hearing this live, whether you're hearing it a few days after it was recorded, whether you're hearing it years later. This is 2022 again. But I want to hear from you all what you think in-world history will look like 50, 100 years from now. What will it think of Ned Stark? What will the in-world history say about Ned Stark, about Catelyn, about Tyrion, about Tywin, about Danny? It's a little harder with characters like Danny because we don't know her, the extent of her story yet. But with someone like Ned who's passed, someone like Joffrey who's passed, someone like Robert who's passed, how is history going to remember them now? Like what honest things will be written about Ares now that the, the author is able to write, you know, in a different way? Or what honest things will be written about Tywin uh, in the future when the Lannisters are presumably out of power? So we don't have to answer that now, but think about it as we go through this book. Keep it in the back of your mind. And if you get ideas, send them our way in the live chat through email. Go to our Discord, tweet them at us, however you want to communicate it. We'd love to hear it. Another variable to that thought, Aziz, is how different do you think it will be? How differently will they be perceived in Westeros versus in Essos? Mm. Or in different parts of Westeros? The North versus the Iron Islands versus King's Landing, etc. That is an absolutely perfect point to add there. You're right, because the way Ned Stark is going to be remembered in the North is dramatically different than the way he will be remembered by more common histories, I suppose. Or as we um, see in Bravos um, by the place. Perfect example. Yeah, the play is, of course, the play is a good example of something that's meant to be entertaining. So they're, they're, they're going to intentionally play up certain things. But history does that too, just less overtly most of the time. No, like if a history is really boring, no one reads it. So definitely there's, you know, real world historical authors have 
You know, if there's two versions of a story and they're not sure which one's the real one, you might lean towards the more interesting one just because <laughs> it's more interesting, you know, and that is just you do that enough times. And well, <laughs> you may have diverted from the truth, but you wouldn't be able to tell. Uh, let's talk about um, let's talk about Giants for a minute. We've got a whole episode on Giants. So this well, we're going to approach this a little differently and try not to do any have any overlap. But of course, there's plenty more things we could say about Giants. The episode is called dot, 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 When Giants Roamed. If you haven't checked that one out, it would be a good time to. So let's have Sean read this quote. Now the Giants are gone, even in the lands beyond the wall. The last reports of them are more than 100 years old. And even those are dubious tales that Rangers of the Watch might tell over a warm fire. So good example of the Maester bias here. That's a special sort of... Uh, arrogance that George is having them project here. It's, it's one thing to deny that something ever existed. Like, uh, there's never been a um, rainbow dragon. We've never, there's been no sightings of that. So why would you assume it exists, right? But this is, they admit it existed. They know, they fully say, yes, these were real ones. But then they just insist it's extinct. Why would they not trust the Rangers' word here? The Rangers were probably the, pro almost certainly, the primary source for the existence of giants in the first place. It's not like the maesters go on rangings themselves, <laughs> at least not that we know of. Maybe there were some exceptions out of all the many maesters that have existed on the wall. There probably were a few that would go out there. But it's kind of odd. This is, this is an example of something that has been a, a problem in every era in human history is when people just don't listen to the experts. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the first-hand knowledge. Fair, <laughs> there is reason for him to suspect them. You're right. right? Yes, you're right. There are. A, that they are more likely, as you just said, to tell the more interesting story. Yes. Um, and B, in more recent times, they're not full of the most honorable people. Also so. true. Yeah, also true. And that, that, that applies to the real world. There's people, yes, it's true. Like there's an argument like, oh, certain scientists will exaggerate their results to get more funding. That is yeah. a thing that happens, but like it's, it's not necessarily, it shouldn't probably be where you start. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> and I can imagine, you know, maybe like police informants who are addicted to crack cocaine. Like, we'll try to get some information for them, from yeah. them, but we maybe can't rely on it. Yeah, know? you have to maybe try to corroborate it before you just fully accept it. things like that. So, and that's the thing, though. We got if you have multiple rangers telling similar stories, then then it's a lot harder to distrust it. But uh, <laughs> um, so, but it's not clear which rangers are are being referred to and yeah. when they lived and all that. Now, bones by themselves are, are a big deal. Like, you find bones, and nowadays, like, comparative anatomy is was the sort of the basis for where paleontology began. Like, comparing, like, this thigh bone to that thigh bone and saying, is this the same species, or what does it have in common, and what else can we tell about it? And these are the kind of questions that scientists ask. Interestingly, we have some differences in the way bones work in in George's world, which is maybe only uh, limited to a few species. But for example, dragons, their bones are black um, because of high iron content. I don't know how realistic that is. Uh, <laughs> 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 it doesn't need to be. But uh, it's an example of something that George has tweaked uh, to add the fantasy elements. Um, he's also changed how obsidian works. Like, it's obsidian. He's also changed how human genetics work. Big deal. It's fantasy. He's allowed to do that as long as it's consistent, right? So that is a good, that's like a kind of a fun rabbit hole to think about, like, when fantasy archaeology actually happens in this setting at some point in the future, they have a, a different set of 
things to be working with, you know? <laughs> like, whoa, like, well, this is clearly a dragon because his bones are black. <laughs> Dude, there's there's um chicken that has black bones. Really? Uh, the I, I am Samani chicken. And not only are the birds feathers, beak, comb, tongue, and toes a striking bluish black, but so are its bones. Hell chicken. Oh. Yeah. So I bet it doesn't have higher iron content. Yeah. Though. So yeah, it says some breeds <laughs> well, maybe of chicken, a chicken doesn't are fly very anyway. black. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah. So the giants provide us with a lot of examples of what we were discussing prior about how our own attitudes can perceive how we view them. Like we look at them as savage and brutal. But then John goes and talks to one one and they have all these like stories and histories that he's John's like, I wish that someone could write all this down. So it's there. It exists. They remember it. They're intelligent. They talk. They have language. I mean, come on. That's a huge sign. They have burials. They have pets, right? This is, this is pretty intelligent. Like I would not look down on that as, as, uh, you know, as lesser, Right. Like certainly in modern times, we, we, we try to have that attitude and try to understand things like that. But like th- you don't have to push it here. Like these are <laughs> right burials, pets, stories, <laughs> language like that's very advanced. You don't have to reach to see that they have culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's clear. Right. Like that's those are distinct things like they care about each other. They care about each other as individuals. They see each other as individuals. They have love. They have laughter. They have yeah, all this range of emotions that we recognize is the things that we have. And the burials, too, make it easier to do historical research, right? You have a whole skeleton rather than one that was like someone dies on a hill and their bones get scattered and predators are at them. Like a nice self-contained, I'm not saying it's always a sarcophagus. They probably didn't make giant coffins, but it's more contained and it has stuff like they bury it with a horn or with a some piece of bone that they had like a you know a, a totem of some kind and uh, that's the, these are the kind of things that future Wester, uh, Westerosi maesters and archaeologists will be delving deep into and I uh, so yeah so that's that's all really I find that just to be super yeah, we, super we, interesting we went a lot into that into like as he said in our Giants episode and I Personally, if you have not listened to it, I do recommend it. I thought it was, um, I learned some stuff. Right on. Yeah, we, we, as usual, we try to get into some of the real world stuff as a setting to try to set the stage and then meander on into the fantasy elements. Um, like Nina also mentions another example, like the old tongue. There's the old tongue that died out south of the wall. You still have people like the Thens that still speak that way. And they talk to the giants. The giants have that language, you know, but there's so few of them left, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, that they're, the way that that child leaf puts it, it's their long dwindling and they're, the giants are on their dwindle as well because it doesn't seem like there's any recovery for the species, does it? It is hard to imagine a way for this to turn around, isn't it? Uh, I don't really see that happening to you. I've got a good imagination. <laughs> hey, there you go, Sean Solo. <laughs> I know, I can imagine quite a bit. Yeah, you can imagine quite a few giants. Hmm. You know, a little aside, I don't want to get too into it, but a lot in the past few, I think in the past few years, it's uh, been learned about Stonehenge, mm. largely from the burials. They've they've yeah. they've pieced together like transitions of cultures and uh, where the the different grave sites around Stonehenge were, and I could go on and on about it. But uh, but it's been a huge source of his or prehistorical mm-hmm. information from the burials around Stonehenge. By the way, there are a lot of Stonehenge-like structures around England. It, mm. it, it, 
kind of pieced together that that was like the burial process at one time was to make these sort of circular centers for burial, but that there's like this transition point when culture changed and they stopped doing it. So there's a, uh, there's a little more, I would like to come back to that. When we get to some of the obelisks around Westeros and Planetos, especially the Seastone Chair, which at this rate, we won't get to this episode. We thought we might, but because that's a thing that comes up. It's like you see these vast constructions like the pyramids or Stonehenge. And of course, the pyramids are vastly older than the, Stone, the Stonehenge even. And there's things even older than that. And you think, oh, they must have had more technology then. That's just a, that's a, a future conceit. It's not true. We know that they figured out how to move these giant objects. Um, they're just, it was just ingenuity. They're not sure how they moved the objects at Stonehenge, by the way. They're still perplexed by it. They have theories. Yeah. And, but the, the, the best theory they have right now is they were really determined. That's it. Like the details, they're really not sure yet. <laughs> There's a great video. I'll have to go find it. There's a, a modern man who's been able to do some things that are the basis for some of the uh, trying to understand how these ancients moved such large objects. Because this, this is a man who moved a barn by himself. Let that sink in. Yeah, he moved a barn by himself. It just with like pivots and holes and levers and pull. It's really fast. I'm going to go find it and show you. It's like a show because he, he moved lots of things. He's moved multiple barns. He's moved huge stones. And so it's really, really neat to see how these things were done. Like he's using tools, quote unquote, but not engines, not right. machines. He's using nothing that they couldn't have had back then. Like not even the, like not even steel hammers, like not even like the, uh, so only stone and weight and counterweight and digging, <laughs> you know? Mm. So it's really cool. So that's, that's a good thing. That's going to be relevant to us because a lot of people theorize in the fandom, like, for example, that Ashai or, or that the Moat Kalen or something is actually from some civilization that's as old as the children or even older than that. There's a couple, however... The basis for that is like, oh, that this this suggests a technology that's been lost. We're like, well, does it? <laughs> maybe not a technology, maybe just a technique, right? Uh, and there's more reasons for that, which we'll be getting into when we talk about the children. For example, the children of the forest do not mention these other races to Bran or to Blood Raven or anyone that we know of. So that's another strike against that theory, but certainly not um, one that kills it. So let's move on to a bigger topic: the children. <laughs> <laughs> smaller topic, yeah, bigger, bigger smaller, bigger topics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the children, we want to talk about green seers. We want to talk about the old gods and the werewoods and a lot of subtopics that come from that. Their song and music was said to be as beautiful as they were, but what they sing of is not remembered, save in small fragments handed down from ancient days. Maester Childer's Winter Kings, or the legends and lineages of the Starks of Winterfell, contains a part of a ballad alleged to tell of the time Brandon the Builder sought the aid of the children while raising the wall. He was taken to a secret place to meet with them, but could not at first understand their speech, which he described as sounding like the songs of stones in a brook, or the wind through the leaves, or rain upon water. The manner in which Brandon learned to comprehend the speech of the children is a tale in itself and not worth repeating here but it seems clear that their speech originated or drew inspiration from the sounds that they heard every day and probably shared much of its beauty. Not worth Wait, repeating not here. Worth, <laughs> yeah, what do you mean not worth repeating here? Where, you, where else are you going to repeat it? Jerk that's exactly Gandalf, what we want you yeah. to repeat here. <laughs> it's like, that's like the thing in the world of Ice and Fire later, which just skips over the third Blackfire rebellion because it's like, oh, this has been written about plenty. No, it hasn't, but that's, <laughs> and make ours, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, that's where George is. This is George code for, 
I don't want to explain it here. <laughs> I haven't hashed this out yet. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm saving this for later. I, I've, I haven't figured this all out yet. Yeah, that's what that means. Singers of the songs of Earth. Just conceptually, the idea that they're singers, and this is a song of ice and fire, and that there's concepts like the secret song that brought back the day in reference to the Long Night and the Roinar. There's all sorts of music references made in the core of this story and these themes. So let me keep an eye on. I don't have some grand spiel to rattle off here about that, but I really want to make sure we're keeping our, uh, keeping an eye on that. And here's another quote. This one Shea can read. Uh, this one is from a child of the forest. So it's an important contrast to what Yandel is saying here. This comes from brand three, a dance with dragons. The first men named us children, the little woman said. The giants called us Wadaknagran, the squirrel people, because we were small and quick and fond of trees, but we are no squirrels, no children. Our name in the true tongue means those who sing the song of earth. Before your old tongue was ever spoken, we had sung our songs 10,000 years. That's kind of what I mean when I'm saying there's, there's, there's some indirect counter evidence to other human species being around for things like the sea stone chair or these oily black substances, like super ancient. Like if, if it happened, it could have been long ago, but not as long ago as some theories would hold because there just seems to be, from quotes like this, an indication that truly Westeros was free of humans for a very long time. Yeah, I, I, the sea stone chair, for example, would that have been children of the forest? Yeah, I don't think so, because like nothing like that. They have there's just no other anything that they've done, you know. But but it could be an exception, but, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, if they they said they've been there for ten thousand years, they might have done things yeah. nine thousand years ago that were very different than two thousand years ago. Yeah, they were lost or hidden or destroyed or. It's hard to understand why they would make a human sized chair though, right? Yeah. Like why they would do yeah, that's that true. for for that's a good point. Like why would they like for people that <laughs> we've never seen humans before. Are coming. We know they're gonna be about this big. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really big child of the forest. They're not all the same size. It's like well, we've made a lot of unusually sized things. <laughs> I mean that's true. There is a, there is a chair that I drive by sometimes that is out in someone's yard that is the size of a giant. Like I'm telling you, you see that chair? It is made for a giant. Like I have, I, I literally marked it on Google Maps on my phone as like a point of interest because it's so unusually large of a chair. So, what if the Lincoln Memorial had been cut short? Just, <laughs> just a, chair a chair without Abe Lincoln. <laughs> Ten thousand years from now, people were looking back and like, they must have had a giant president. <laughs> yeah, like Planet of the Apes refers. How he says the Statue of Liberty to show like that's their big reveal, so that you know it's Earth, right? What, what if, if it was Lincoln's thought- chair instead? Like. <gasps> <laughs> They, they all thought that the Statue of Liberty was the size of humans. Yeah, like, oh my God, that's a life-size person. Holy crap. In the future, people are giant and made of copper. <laughs> Again, and this is kind of humorous, but seriously, think in 10,000 years, what if there had been two or 300 years span where some humanoid faction had come across and banded with or conquered or, or been subjugated by the children of the forest? That would be just like a minor little blip on a 10,000-year scale. Yeah. That's it, true. You know, might have been lost or forgotten or covered up or whatever. Can I just know? say that the, I'm not going to get into any spoilers about this, but for those of you who have read the Final Expanse book, 
you'll appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So let's talk about what they're called. The, it's really interesting to me. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the books, to, just for a minute here. Sean, do you remember? Now you saw them first in the show, but you heard them mentioned early on with like old Nan and Children of the Forest were mentioned. What do you? What can you remember? If it's possible, what you thought of the children at first, um, the way they were introduced. I know a lot has changed since then, but what I'm sort of getting at is how they're by calling them the children. It, it makes them seem. Uh, harmless or, you know, it gives them... It infantilizes them. Yeah, it infantilizes them in a way that is not very true at all, is it? It's very much the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, I th I, I mean, it was such a passing bit of information in there that my thoughts probably didn't develop too far. And in fact, I was probably less aware of the timeline back then, too. So mm, I might have even okay. thought that they were like a race that had come along after men but dominated the continent. Does that make sense? Yes. But I definitely, I will point out, I definitely didn't think of them as being small creatures. So oh, I definitely okay. didn't think that. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Um, and it's interesting, too, to think about that they call themselves those who sing the song of Earth. The name they give to themselves, I think, is a lot more significant than, than, call, than what the humans call them uh, or what the giants call them, the squirrel people or the children of the forest. Both of those sound, yeah, like small and harmless or not very dangerous. <laughs> and we come to find out they're involved in caves full of bones and blood sacrifice and people turning into trees. It's quite a bit more heavy, isn't it? Yeah. And their level of knowledge. They have like thousands and thousands of years of collected memories contained within the trees. And of course, there's it's very adult. They're, the death of their species is not exactly a light topic either. That's very sad. And and when Bran's confronted with it, it makes him very sad. And is, I, I imagine that I'm gonna, is supposed to impact quick, the reader. I just want to point out that like caves full of bones or whatever other sort of like terrifying or gruesome things you might attribute to the children of man. Yeah. Nothing compared to humans. Yeah, that's true. You're right. <laughs> it's not like we don't have caves full of bones. And <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> it's also the name children also is in contrast to their species being so old. I mean, like this is, you know, they're children of the forest, but they're vastly older than humanity is, as we've been led to understand. Uh, where are the, we, <laughs> humans are the children, uh, yeah, really, the you know, in that forest. sense. What's that? The pensioners of the forest. Pensioners of the forest. <laughs> you know, seniors. Wise, small ones of the forest. <laughs> yes. Uh, w there's some world building of the world building that we're going to do from time to time here. In a, in a section coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about the origins of the children, the meta origins of the children, George's own conception of them and how he came to write them. But sticking with this, here's a, another quote. The gods gave us long lives, but not great numbers, lest we overrun the world as deer will overrun a wood where there are no wolves to hunt them. That was in the dawn of days when our sun was rising. Now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. Very, very sad. The sorrow contained in that phrase is, it's, it's not just sorrow, but it's like acceptance of sorrow. Like this is not just a sorrowful uh, phrasing, but it's someone who's accepted their fate. Like, this is our destiny to die off. There's a lot I have to say about this, or a lot of small rabbit holes we can potentially turn into big rabbit holes here. For example, the gods gave us long lives. Who are these gods? Are they, like, we've always been wondering, they have, they're the ones who introduced the humankind to the concept of the old gods. But there's all this, like, well, 
are the old gods the green seers in the trees? Are there some sort of cosmic force beyond that? This is as close as we get to it, I think, in terms of our current understanding, seeing that even the children see them as gods, whether they're, you know, gods promoted from within their own ranks or some other force or entity altogether isn't clear. But this is what they teach humans. It's really interesting that humans eventually adopt this religion that apparently started uh, maybe even before humans evolved at all. That's just, that's weighty, isn't it? It's something that you could in the real world just blow off. But in this world, well, it seems like there really are gods, you know, yeah. like, and, and maybe a well, bunch of different ones or maybe only one God, but there's magic cultures called in a different names. Yeah. Or, you know, I, 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 whether you call it God, I still will argue with you about that, Sean. I, what God is, I mean, in terms of I, there's clearly magical entities. Whether okay, you yeah, call yeah. them a god or gods, I don't agree with necessarily um, that they are gods, but... Um, we can I, at least say that it's unclear. There's, there's definitely supernatural yeah. beings. Yes. I just want to make that clear that I do not agree with that God is real. Yeah, I, was, I, I should clarify that I'm not even sure in this world that there really is, quote-unquote, a god or gods. Yeah. But there are supernatural beings that could reasonably be called gods, you know. Sure. Not just made up conscripts of, I've always, of their culture. Yeah, I've always kind of seen the the green seers that went into the trees, the children that went into the trees as being their gods, personally. Which is really interesting, right? If their own people ascend to godhood. Yeah. Like, that that's is, like, yeah. huh. That's, and like, that is like, what is a god? Even You know, like, they, they maybe they do really fit the qualifications of what a god is and that they're omnipotent and everlasting, you know, like if we're we're saying yeah. what we think you need to be to be God, maybe all of those children in the forest are gods. Yeah. But definitely. Yeah, magic exists. You're right. One thing that's interesting, too, is that they supposedly have like these or at least access to magical energies, these powers, these gods or whatever you want to call it. But it's clearly not something they can just throw around willy-nilly, at least doesn't seem like it. Because, for example, like, how does a species with all the supernatural power have such trouble with giants? Well, Sean, you had a couple of ideas on this, and this is a good springboard for a lot of smaller theories we can work with. You suggested the possibility, referring to the idea that there was a giant skeleton found with obsidian arrowheads in its rib cage. Yeah, it's, it's a springboard I, I, for some possibilities here. Like at, at that, to, at first, my thought was, you know, this is maybe they only have very limited uh, limited uh, information to analyze this ancient history and culture. And so it would make sense when they find a buried giant with obsidian. They know this children's forest uses obsidian. Okay, so they must have been at war with each other. Well, my first instinct was, well, Maybe it was, maybe they weren't necessarily at war with each other. Maybe that was a, a zombie, a, you know, a white, a giant white mm-hmm. that they were trying to kill and knew obsidian would work. And, uh, and, 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 and to, to, to jump in quickly, Sean, like mm-hmm. if that's the case, why would that even necessarily have been a bow shot from a child of the forest? Like why, how, where's their evidence that that was fired from a child's arrow? Like why couldn't that have been yeah, something else? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so the giants could have learned from the children of the forest that obsidian works against white walkers or whatever. Yeah. But I, 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 one, I realized that there is, there is more data. We have more data at least to work on whether or not Yendel does, but we know that the children tell Bran that there was some conflict with the giants. Yes. 
Multiple but even examples. still, it doesn't mean all children were always at war with all giants. Yeah. There still could have been like two factions that shared a border that warred amongst each other, but that, that, that all the rest weren't. Or that one rogue giant or one rogue faction of giants had a battle one time yeah. or maybe in recent times, you know, where so that the children talking to Bran might still talk about them being at war, but they might have not been in war for 8,000 years. They yeah. realized, you know? <laughs> so it's it, when you only have a little bit of information, it makes sense to conclude something along that line. But one, we know there is more information than what Yandel has, and we are likely to get more information than we already have. And even with that information, you can't be too certain about the conclusions you draw. Yes, yes. Now, one thing we can maybe say is that it's probably this. Maybe this is too recent for it to be really ancient. You know, like if 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 there's still bones and obsidian in the rib cage, like could this? How old could this be? I'm not really sure. But sticking kind of with that idea, we've talked before about the possibility that the others, assuming they were a creation of the children, which is a good bit of evidence for that. Uh, we don't have to accept it fully, but let's assume it is for the purposes of, of this point. It wouldn't have necessarily, almost certainly wasn't something that all the children were like, yes, let's do this. Let's make the others. It was probably a group of them. May have even been a small group, a minority, a splinter tribe or something like that that did that. So sort of using your idea about a group of giants, we could obviously go, there's a lot of different versions of, of us to imagine uh, how that could have gone. Yeah, and also just how we know the this story is going to at least culminate partly with a conflict with the others. So looking, being on the lookout for clues as to how that could have happened or things in, in the past that illuminate what's coming is a really good thing to keep an eye out for, Sean. So I, I like thinking about this a lot. Uh, and, and of course, the notion that there will be undead giants is extremely likely, right? I mean, about, we, mm -hmm. and you know, we never talk about undead children of the forest. Yeah. Could they be animated themselves? Yeah, Ooh, can undead they be children? Animated? Yikes. That is terrifying. <laughs> I'm still more scared of the undead giant. Yeah, me too. They're, yeah. they're a bit larger. <laughs> Especially when you wonder, it seems generally like the undead are kind of mindless zombies you know they don't have memory or intent maybe they do but they don't seem to you know yeah but but children seem to have sort of supernatural powers would they maintain those as uh as whites um yeah yeah like if a, if I, a child I, can do magic mm, can a white do magic too yeah uh, yeah hmm. like a lich can, can a white <laughs> green seer or, or warg still get into a wolf or whatever you know well we're gonna find out with john <laughs> <laughs> right? John's going to answer that question if he can still warg into ghost as a resurrected guy. Although maybe yeah, that's, that's different a, than a Maybe white. he's a... Uh, you know, resurrected is different. You're right. White, yeah, it's so different yeah. magic animating him. Or is yeah. it? Or is <laughs> it? Yeah, who knows? You're right. It's, it's an experiment, that's for sure. <laughs> and we're very curious as to what will happen. But if we try to, again, distance ourselves from humanity here and try to think about what this was like before there were people around, what would but they be, be clear, using... I was going to say real quick, to be clear, sure. though, I do have some memory. Nina, that's true. That they do have they some do memory. They have some memory, or they have. So I, I she said she's she's bringing up like how Jay for Flowers went after Lord Commander Mormon specific, specifically, but I, I don't really know that that means memory necessarily. That means control to me. Like I, I, I think it probably we, means memory. I, it probably does. I just mean like for sure. It it doesn't have to necessarily. Yeah, there's a chance it does memory. Mean, it does. Yeah. It, it, it could be control. It could be. It could be random. It's probably not that. But um, you know, I we, It's not clear how much. 
whoever's in control of a white, if they can see through their eyes, like a war, like, you know, like a skin yeah. changer could, like, yeah. I- I've always wondered, like, you know, how do they control? Do they say, okay, you're going to, you know, go after Lord Commander Mormont, who you know because you've met, or do they... Or do they say go after anyone that you know? Uh, yeah, that? you know, like I mean, even among humans outside the fantasy world or whites or anything else, memory is still kind of uh, challenging to understand. It or sure is. <laughs> describe or whatever, especially so. when it's contained in trees. But um. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, there seems to be some evidence that there is some sort of something left in a white. Yeah, 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 and. There's more to for us to discover here. I'm I'm certain in the next in the next book is probably when we'll get the majority of it. I think by by the time the final book comes out, we'll, we may not be much more to learn about whites and others. I think I'm guessing that'll be here. But super interesting. So the others probably didn't exist during the Dawn Age, right? Because they were probably made out of humans, and if they weren't, they were made to fight humans. Right, uh, so there wouldn't be much reason to have made the others when there weren't humans around, let alone the possibility that you need humans to make others in the first place. So that's a thing to think about. But what I want to get into is like this religious significance of death. Like the children view death differently, right? Um, they call it going down into the earth. It's like it's like a religious. You become part of the earth. It's it's not a, it's not final. It's like the next stage, right? Which how does a culture that sees things that way how do they view the concept of necromancy is that like some abomination and which is why we why i want to think about that because uh combining that idea with the notion of not all the children would be down for creating some sort of necromantic monster uh, if it's like a it might be seen as kind of evil or blasphemous within their own belief system if they have this view of how death works and if you're subverting that you're messing with death you're perverting the natural order of things then i could see how that would be viewed uh to use a different religious term as you know sinful or, or blasphemous or whatever for lack of better words how does that strike you sean that concept it, it is neat to think about in fact uh we as humans generally seem to be striving to beat death if yeah, you will, right yeah and and we'll say that we assume that when we're i mean there is like a lot of religious belief that when you die there is something else beyond yeah and but we're not all killing ourselves to get there and even religions usually have rules against killing yourself there still is this strong desire to live strong sorrow for those that die and as far as we can tell no no real evidence of existence beyond it which adds to our desire to <laughs> to resist it and even though maybe humanoids have existed for thousands and thousands of years, our understanding of human history is still several thousand years, but not not really ten thousand. You know, the the childrens are, are older than we are. Oh, you know, yeah. even our scratching the surfaces of you know written history or knowledge of ancient cultures. So, so they may have a different perspective, especially if they live longer within it. And we're at the point now where we are approaching the ability to be death. Like we're living longer. We're finding cures for cancers and diseases and stuff, you know, and maybe even the ability to like preserve our brains in Futurama style or whatever. <laughs> at some point, we won't be able to afford to do that. Even without doing that, we're running out of resources on earth. Mm. And even if it's hundreds of years away, well, when you talk about a civilization that's 10,000 years old, even the children talk about the idea that deer will overrun a forest if there's no wolves to hunt them down. Mm. So I wonder how much that's a, a factor that they maybe experienced overpopulation at one point. 
Uh, mm -hmm. You know, especially when you add in magical elements, if that was a way for them to overcome it, if they know that when they are absorbed into the earth, if they have some sort of evidence that they still exist, hmm. if if the living children can still communicate with the dead ones through the roots of the trees, it's less scary or, or yeah, or, or it's not as final. final right. Die, yes. You know, which might change your perspective on it. And that is not, a and, huge and, point I wanted to make. It's not so that. much like you're extinct or endangered in that case. It's not really like you're yeah. you're always going to exist then. Yeah. I'd be less worried about death if I knew that I could freeze my brain and then I could bring it back one day, even without a body. I would still like to be able to think and see art and what, listen what, to music. And I mean, what, what if, come up with stories what and, if you couldn't do any of that? You couldn't come up with anything where people could read your brain, Sean. That, because that's, that, that. I think that's more like what is <laughs> I've got happening. Some dark here. secrets. <laughs> Personally, yeah. But I think more, that's more of what is the case. But yeah, is the even case that, with children. Even is that. That, that's like your store's there, but they can't look at art they can't create things they aren't a person it's, but they it's interesting exist. that you point that out because we're approaching that too that like maybe someone can't like when i die maybe science can't get into my brain and read it but through my life i'm putting my brain out there i'm typing my reviews of movies i'm talking about this book that i read mm -hmm. i'm i'm you know but, but making posting pictures of things i saw on the facebook like my my but what's in my brain a lot of it is being put out to the world even now, even without some sort of immortal technology or whatever. And that, I think, actually does make me feel better about it. If I don't know if that makes sense. I haven't thought about it too deeply, but I think that's part of why we do it. We do want to yeah, we care about our posterity, mark on the world, have a legacy yeah. or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that's why we have kids. It's where, you know, you write things. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. But that's. I think we're done. I don't think there's any need to podcast anything further for anyone. We just solved. We all solved it all. Just we just now. solved death. We just beat death in in a podcast. Well, I mean, it seems like what you did to beat death was say you need to keep podcasting. <laughs> More of your thoughts will be recorded. Your personality will be preserved. That's what they'll do in order to bring you back in the future. They're going to have to find all these things you participated in and then throw it into some AI program. And yeah, I mean, you say <laughs> that, but uh, I, there are people out there. I mean, like, I mean, this isn't the exact thing, but like, think about Audrey Hepburn, mm. how they or Carrie Fisher, people who like they can recreate them visually yeah. in movies, in commercials and stuff yeah. like that. Like, And they have done it. And, if, and it is different, but they could only do that because they were so recorded that we have. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yo, that's a weird thought. I'm probably more recorded than Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more angles on Audrey, though. Maybe not more viewed. Not more, but, well, uh, not more viewed, but I think definitely like we haven't really seen the back of you, of your head that often. <laughs> uh, you gotta, you gotta, we gotta do some like 360s it's, on you here, Sean, just in case, for the future. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what would the what are we a song of ice and fire? A song of ice and Hepburn. <laughs> ah, so Hepburn. So you have Hep fr Frost. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Hep Freeze and Hepburn. Hmm. Yes. So now we've really gone afield. Uh. Song of Carrie Fire. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the Fisher Queen. The Fisher Queen. That was her. Oh, there we go. <laughs> couple of comments from uh, some of y'all. Uh, Devora says, Brandon says that the children of the forest sounds like the quote, the songs of stones in a brook or the wind through the leaves or the rain upon the water. And that would be the true tongue. And in a Game of Thrones, Will sees an other. 
Then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. So yeah, the, the others sort of have this connection to nature in ways that feel similar to the way the children are existing in nature, which uh, again speaks to the not entirely clear connection between them, but something is there. This whole idea of the true tongue, um, the fashioning their language after nature sounds is, is a fascinating concept. And uh, one that we've explored elsewhere in the Weirwood, our Weirwood episode, we really get into all the examples of rustling because uh, George uses the word rustle in particular uh, to indicate this is happening. The tree is speaking or something like that. And, but how would this have been used prior to humans? Again, I want to come back to that question. They're carving trees. They're developing their language based on natural sounds. There's not a lot of them. They do have long lives, though. But they're not... Uh, what's, like, what's the point of being able to see in the past or the future when life is... I don't know, relatively static. Maybe I'm maybe I'm ex exaggerating those differences, but like without technology, without buildings, which aren't necessarily necessary. I'm just saying, like, what are you looking at in past and future? Art. Yeah, I guess they do. I mean, they have the faces. I mean, you're singing songs. I don't know. Ah, yeah. Some might have emotional growth. You know, children yeah. growing up. I mean, and yeah. Elders passing. And, Think about how long you have like, to look uh, into the future to see your, your children grow up. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to get into that mindset. Like, what does it mean? Like, as a culture that views time and death very differently, like, what are some of the extensions of that? It's a very open question. I'd love to hear from you all out there as well. What you think of the children or maybe even using real world religions that get into some of these beliefs as an idea, like certain religions uh, have things sort of familiar to this. I mean, George is borrowing from real world religions and beliefs on a lot of this. Some of it's like Native American. Some of it would be, I don't know, Zoroastrian maybe. I'm not a, I'm maybe not well versed in some of these enough to make one-to-one -one comparisons, but Certainly, he's drawing on a variety of cultures for building the belief system of the children. And uh, if any of y'all out there have some ideas on where some of this may have come from, I would love to hear it. We'd love to source George. <laughs> so add to that if you can. Let's talk a bit more about birds, about the ravens. Let's talk about that, and then we'll probably uh, leave it there for the day. I'm glad you said that because I did have a point I wanted to get in before we finished so, oh, cool. about birds. All right, great. Well, the ravens are one of the animals that they must have grown the closest to. And I guess this is, for example, you talk about children and the birds and, and remembering dead individuals or dead entities. Well, Blood Raven straight up tells Bran that every bird has a singer in them, a, a dead singer in them, which is interesting because it's like okay on one hand they're not all just running around throwing fireballs right else they wouldn't probably have so much trouble with the giants let alone humans but they're also just is each individual living on in a bird it, it, basically what i'm getting at is that like are they all do they all have this magic in them that they that they their spirit goes into a bird or another animal when they die or is that just some of them or is it like Something that they evolved it, into, like early children didn't have this connection to magic that later children grew into like over thousands of years. Really? Also, is it limited to that? Yeah. Is, yeah. Like mm. if someone said when people die, they get buried. They're not being dishonest or inaccurate, but some people are thrown into the sea or yeah. burned into ashes or et cetera, et cetera. It's so there really are fair. other options, things that could also happen. You know? Yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good point. 
Some are dragged up a mountain. <laughs> 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 they, should, they should just burn it or chop it up and take it up there. <laughs> so let's let's do a little compare side by side. Uh, this is some of this same stuff or similar stuff would be in our episode of Septon Barth. I know we're even going to mention Septon Barth here, but we're going to approach it a little differently. Ravens are amongst the cleverest of birds, but they are no wiser than infant children and considerably less capable of true speech whatever Septon Barth might have believed. A few maesters devoted to the link of Valyrian steel have argued that Barth was correct, but not a one has been able to prove his claims regarding speech between men and ravens. Okay, so let's talk process for a second here. First of all, we stated earlier, Septon Barth is an, is an authority on these, and we should usually take his word for these things. And so this is a good example of the minority being right. The fringe opinion is the correct one. But this whole thing about proof, like, what do you, what kind of proof are you expecting? Not one of them has been able to prove his claims regarding speech between men and ravens. This is stuff that happened thousands of years ago. How, how could there be proof of it? <laughs> so it's kind of like one of those people who ask for proof of something. It's like, you, you see that sometimes when, when something is kind of plain or straightforward or you know it can't be proved, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? So we just, we can't, you may necessarily use it as hard evidence, we also can't dismiss it because it comes from a trusted source. But Yandel is dismissing it. But we know better. <laughs> we have our reader-privileged information. For example, the, the follow-up quote that comes from Bloodraven. It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by Raven. But in those days, the birds would speak the words. The trees remember, but men forgot. And so now they write the messages on parchment and tie them around their feet, tie them around the feet of birds who never shared their skin. Old Nan had told him the same story once, Bran remembered. But when he asked Rob if it was true, his brother laughed and asked him if he believed in Grumpkin's <laughs> So you see how it, it's been, it's laughed at, like not just by people in the Citadel, just downplay it. You've got people like Rob who just think it's just so ridiculous that it couldn't possibly be true. But we know that it is. <laughs> so operative concepts here. One is that the birds still have the skill. They can still talk this way. It's humans forgot how to teach them. And this doesn't seem that strange at all. I mean, we've got real world birds that can talk pretty clearly and thoroughly, right? So you have no idea, Zeus. There's a real world bird. I think it might be called the mimic bird or something like that. Google this. Everyone out there, Google, look this up on YouTube. This bird can make any other sound. And a lot of what it does is make the sound of other birds, mm. right? It, like use their mating calls. Like, well, you know, whatever you think the most beautiful mating call in the world is, well, this bird is more beautiful because it can do all of the different ones. <laughs> it also... They, they have videos of this bird. It, it makes, it, it'll make the sound of like a woodpecker cracking on wood oh. or some other bird making its mating call. But it'll also make a sound like this. Oh, like, like a construction vehicle. A truck backing up. Oh, wow. Or a, zzz, a, chainsaw. a chainsaw. Wow. A camera shutter. It just makes every noise that it can hear. It's just Whoa. unbelievable what this bird can do. Yeah, I can tell you, I my brother has um, an African parrot, actually. Um, I don't like birds personally, but it's, it is impressive. I mean, like those birds, not a magical raven, can communicate yeah. with you, can really say words back. I don't know. It, it, it is impressive. It is. That's an amazing example, too, because this is what we're trying to get into. Like, they, the children develop their language based on sounds they heard out in the world, like real sounds that exist in nature. That's what these birds are doing. They're just, that bird's just imitating what it hears out in the world. And then it's just trying to, like, figure out how to make use of its ability to make, to copy those things. Um, yeah. 
That's super cool. <laughs> and humans, yeah. though, anyway. they forgot. And humans forgot how to do this, apparently. And But why did they forget? Was it... I mean, it's so useful, right? Like, it's kind of yeah, like the same thing. Like a weird thing to... They kind of forgot. Like. Yeah, it, it, yeah, they kind of forgot. Yeah, but but it is realistic. I mean, it's not realistic that Danny forgot about Euron. That's that's silly. But it is realistic that that humans forget how to do complicated things over time. For example, the freaking Stonehenge stuff we just talked about. Like, how did they do that? Yeah. We don't know. But uh, ancients, they, but they clearly yeah. did it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, another potential explanation is similar to what I was saying before about how there's probably some time period where they had a very young maester or archmaester because of disease, famine, tragedy, fire, whatever else. That could also, like in a long winter, that could be there could be enough time goes by that the birds aren't flying, the old people that know the secrets die, they come back out of it, it wasn't properly recorded or preserved, and it's forgotten. Mm -hmm. It also could have only been known by a small group of people and not every human, you know, like yeah. and so that that small group of people was trying to keep it secret and then all got burned up at once, which is something else we know can happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, like for example, I meant to bring this up earlier when you're bringing up how some people see knowledge as power and are very and guard it and won't share it just on general principle, even if even if it's helpful, even if they don't see how it can be used against them, they just prefer to keep it close to the chest. Like a great example of this happening in the story, it's a very subtle but meaningful uh, example of the kind of person Roose Bolton is, is that moment where he just like, he finds a book on the bookshelf of Hall, reads it, and then he throws it in the fire. And no one knows what's in that book. And George has been asked about that. And George's like, it, it doesn't matter what's in that book. It's the point. The point is, this is the kind of man Roose is. He's just so cynical and evil and selfish that whatever it was he found in that book, he doesn't want anyone else reading. And it. it's probably nothing even that important. It's probably nothing that threatens him. It's just knowledge is power. He has this attitude and he's keeping that, you know? And so he doesn't care at all for future generations or that means nothing to him, which is what that says about a person when you just have no regard for history or for no, no reverence for the written word or its value to future generations. It just says a lot about that person. <laughs> and that's what George was going for with that scene. So it's powerful. Um, and then of course, uh, one other example of maybe where that knowledge was lost, you said you, you brought up burning, uh, burning books, I assume was one of the things you were thinking of in that maybe the library of Alexandria or something like that. The Heron Hall, Heron Hall, uh, not Heron. Well, Heron Hall, but, uh, uh summer hall, summer hall, summer hall. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and um, like the fire at the library in Winterfell that the, the guy Joffrey hired started to distract them all. You know, things like that, yeah. like little things like that. Like that that moment slipped by pretty quickly because the books weren't the focus, but that was, that sucked. <laughs> all those books. Terrible, terrible <laughs> loss. Yeah. Just, yeah, it's hard to fathom just to, how tragic that was. Just to, just for a diversion. I mean, oh, it's, uh, yeah, that's, it, it makes me mad. <laughs> but... <laughs> But it, it, but it, but if we get into like people who would do that on purpose, like not just burning a library without the intent of destroying the knowledge, they did it for some other reason. It was to them, it was just an example. But what about like when the Andals start coming in? This is a topic we'll get into much, much deeper. But like the Andals probably destroyed some stuff. Like they probably destroyed some knowledge or, or, or pushed back some knowledge that disagreed with their beliefs, right? Baylor the Blessed. I mean, that happened in the real world just in the past 10 years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Baylor the Blessed didn't live that long ago in Westerosi time frame. He was 130 years in the past. He had a whole bunch of books burned. So, yeah, I mean, knowledge getting lost, even advanced knowledge is very realistic, unfortunately. 
Another side topic that comes here, and it implies the children themselves were doing this. They taught the first men how to send messages through Raven by making them speak. That implies the children were sending messages them to them to each other that way as well, doesn't it? Maybe it was something that they knew they could do that they didn't need to do because they could other ways to communicate. But I'm I, I see this as evidence that they were doing it and they taught humans how to do it, which also implies some friendship that stands in contrast to the religious wars that existed between the two species. But uh, we'll get to that later. What do you think about this? Yeah, I, I wonder if the children learned it or the birds learned it or if it was the trees, so some mutual mm. knowledge or ability from some other uh, central source they're both getting it from. I don't know. Yeah, because they both learned this like naturalistic thing. Yeah, like they evolved that way. Did the birds evolve with them? Did they? Yeah, like uh, that is really yeah. interesting. Like it's this kind of the origin of a species question here. And all that ignores potential magical, mystical origins or whatever. Yeah, great point. Um, great point. <laughs> I, the, uh, another little thing I was going to, uh, I wanted to bring up, but I realized that I, that I probably needed to do more research and Nina did the research for me. But I was wondering, uh, or, you know, Rita actually brought up the idea that, is it possible that John is hearing the birds differently than anyone else? That he hears that, say, corn or king, but do all the, does everyone else, we're, all, we're almost always hearing it through John's perspective. So is it possible that he has some warg ability to understand the bird language that the others don't? Maybe on some rudimentary level, he doesn't understand full sentences, but certain words. But Nina pointed out that several other characters do reference what the bird had said or hear it in their POV. And and Sa- yeah, like, like Sam but, as well. But but it, it is still it's a, an interesting line of thought. Maybe I think what, maybe if we would just like recalibrate that idea, like if we dial back the supernatural and take more of the literal, it works really well because what's happening is the bird is trying to talk to John, is trying to communicate directly to him. It's just not, I don't think it's using magic to do that, right? It's like it's... Or unless it's Blood Raven communicating to the bird. Is that crazy? No, that is exactly what I mean. No, that's that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, he's trying to communicate to him, but but it's not like... George has to draw, keep a balance between making it obvious and, uh, you know, (laughs) but the bird like looks at him and yeah, like says king and does all these other things. Like, yeah. So again, thinking about along this line more... Could it be that Blood Raven is still in the midst of relearning or reteaching this communication style? Mm. And then maybe he will get to the point where he could just have a conversation with John through one of these birds. Maybe know? not John, but Bran, because Bran's the one who seems oh, to be yeah. in that position. And, and the legend says Brandon the Builder is the one who learned how to speak that language. And so okay. Bran, you know, Bran is kind of Bran the Builder come again. So I think you're on the right track, well, maybe I, for Bran. Yeah, of I, I, w- I would see it more as Bran is the one who communicates through the bird. The, as that in, too. He, as yeah. in he's the one who's going to learn how to speak as the bird to John or to someone else, you know, whatever. That yeah. Bran is on the side of the bird, not the side of the person being communicated with by the bird. That's a great point. Yeah, maybe Bran talks to John through a bird, and John, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that works. That works very well. So in our little... Anyway, all that potential is being set up here by George. Yeah, big time, big time. So apparently it's a liar bird is the one you were referring to? Yes, everyone says it's called the liar bird and everyone was... And people were excited. L-Y-R-E. Yeah, because it could be liar. Yeah, because it is like a liar. It is lying to us all. But yeah, liar is in the instrument. A Joe Magician makes the uh, argument that the children do sort of keep gravestones in a way. The skulls with the roots running through them in a strange little, car- in strange little carved out spots. Yeah, that's true. They sort of have like, those sort of like the little throne rooms. Yeah. Uh, maybe those are just for the green seer versions and not for the other children, for the regular ones. But it's true. That is certainly a 
burial of yeah, sorts. I mean, it could be kind of like, I mean, you think about like the Crypts like of Winterfell, how not everyone gets a statue. Yeah, Some people true. do. It depends on how important you are. It depends on how important you are, whether you get a strange little carved out spot. Yeah. Uh, Tony Sled sends a super chat and says, I suspect spells and pacts and curses and longstanding oaths slash bonds are monitored by the children. Ned knows this? Do they watch him when he's alone? Interesting. Yeah, because... I mean, that uh, is what it gets into when we talk about the idea of the old gods and whether the old gods believe certain things. The old gods are presumably, I mean, it seems the children. That yes. is, is an interpretation on things, in which case... Every time he talks about the old gods, yeah, he is technically talking about the children. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like, are they are the yeah are the old gods like sort of a maintaining? Yeah, are they like watching over contracts? <laughs> are they like doing contract Santa management? Is an old god. Yes, because it's true that you're right. She had to bring that up. Like that is a deeply held belief by the North that. Uh, like what is it? John may, uh, had that line to Mormon where he says, "My father believed that." You have to tell the truth in front of a werewood or any, you know, the old god you're listening. And Mormont goes, yeah, my dad said the same thing. Yeah, and so, like, they don't know that they're talking about the children there. But when they're talking about those trees, those are the beings that are in those trees are the children. Those are the old gods. Yeah, so if they believe that the old gods enforce things like oaths and kin slaying and things like that, that's who they believe is doing it. The chill, like these dead yeah, that, singers. Although that's not they who don't they know believe. It, but... Yeah, that's not who they, that's, that, that is who it is, but that's not what they believe it is. They yeah, they think, think of it, it is as a god. Actual, than... just god. Yeah. So it's cool. We've, we've tried to like shrink this, narrow this down a little bit. We obviously can't get all the way into it, but we've tried to narrow it down a bit. And I think this maybe helps us conceptualize it because we're not going to get all the answers, but we are going to get more answers and more questions and we are going to get more reveals. But it's important for us to, to keep the themes like the human, and I don't mean like human as in human versus children, but I mean like emotional themes relevant to our own life experiences as much as we keep track of the fun supernatural stuff. Because George merges the two beautifully and it's, it's impossible to tell where one begins and the other ends because he merges them so well. And uh, well, there's just not, we, we could never say enough about that. <laughs> But I believe we have said enough for today in general. We have uh, lots more to say on the children. Uh, we'll be getting into their arri the arrival of humans and things like that. More on the old gods, more on skin changers, green seers, the maesters' beliefs on all that. Thought maybe we'd get to that today, but we didn't. And that's okay. We are not in a Which, rush. It also answers, um, it was asked in the chat um, by Julia. She asked if we if we would share a chapter schedule. And unfortunately, no, we will not. But you can tell by this episode that it'll be about one or two chapters at a time. We are just doing it very uh, nice and slow and steady because there's so much to talk about. But just, just so you know, um, you, you don't read too far ahead. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll try to maybe do something like a, a rough schedule for a few weeks out. We'll see if that maybe we'll try that and see if it works. But we can't go too far because yeah, yeah, it's just uh, going to keep changing. Yeah, having this first episode done helps a lot because we really, you know, we had to record it before we could really know what the flow would be like for this coverage of the yeah. fire. I have this whole thing prepared on two different comparisons to the origins of, to meta origins of the children. I thought we would do one of them today, but I guess we'll start with that. We're going to do an episode instead. on the children. Yeah, so we're, it's fun, folks. Uh, send more ideas, send more thoughts, send more questions. 
And remember that we have uh, Elio on on uh, January 16th. So That's I suppose right. um, if you have a question you particularly want for that episode, you could always note that. Co-author of World of Ice and Fire and co-founder of Westeros.org. He will be here. So yeah, if y'all have questions for him, start thinking about it now. At this pace, we will have years of material. (laughs) (laughs) You got that to look forward to. That is the goal. We do intend on, since it's the beginning of another year, this is our 10th year of History of Westeros podcast. That's very cool. We're we're happy to still be going strong. Um, I've always felt that way. I've always felt like we would never run out of topics. (laughs) It's nice to have new material to make that even easier. Um, But yeah, we've done quite well with about many new things coming out recently. But we do have new things coming, even if they're just TV shows. Um, books will come as well, but that's a little less certain when. Uh, so we'll just keep going and keep having great times, relying on ourselves, each other, and the community. You guys are fantastic. Uh, I want to say thanks to everyone who's joined us, everyone who came up live. Uh, thanks to Ashea for managing so much at once. She's got the tentacle arms over there. <laughs> Thanks to Joey and Jesse uh, for the music. Thanks to our Benjineer. Thanks to Nina for her help. Sean, do you have anything to to say uh, before we head out for this first episode? No particular thing. Just be glad no to be doing us again. Yeah, do you have a cat? No, no, no cat. Next week. You got oh, a cat wait. handy. <laughs> we'll see how quick I can grab one. Let's see. Jay's got a Xerxes right here. Oh, I can't. I can't reach that far. Welcome. <laughs> uh, Here Be Dragons, our good friends over there, uh, are discussing The Witcher Season 2. So head over there if you are feeling witchery. And uh, also, I'll drop that we have, uh, we do some Witcher stuff as well. Me and Kyle and McCall over on the podcast of Surprise. And we'll be doing some Witcher Season 2 stuff pretty soon as well. Uh, and so check out the podcast of Surprise if you're feeling witchery given the season two was was uh, only came out pretty recently here as of january 2nd 2022 it's only been out for a couple weeks we'll see you all next week for more world of ice and fire fun more rabbit holes more world building more laughs valar re-reads <laughs>